Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Well, we hope you got your beauty sleep because we're wide awake and we're ready to discuss insomnia. Stephen King's 1994 book about two retirees who find themselves swept up in some quote unquote long time business. Before we get started on that, however, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and who else is on this podcast with me? Who is joining me from Nashville? This is uh, Gen 2, The Rage Adams, <laughs> and I'm sticking with that one for a while. That one feels pretty apt for this moment in time. Um, yeah, from Nashville. Hello. I love it. Uh, <laughs> let's all go around and say what our first experience is with insomnia was this your first time reading it or were you familiar from the old days Jen um I this was at least my second time reading it I have a memory of babysitting and seeing this on the shelf at the house I was babysitting at when I was probably 15 or 16 I think um and of course like as soon as the kids went to bed I like tore into it because I was a huge Stephen King fan and I think Mm -hmm. I don't remember if I finished it I mm-hmm. imagine as like a teenager, I probably was like, this is about old people. I'm not sure I'm into this. <laughs> <laughs> and like not having the book probably just didn't pick it back up. But I read it a couple of years ago when I was doing my reread. So this was my second time reading it. Yeah, cool. Or at least second time full all the way through. Yeah. And what edition did you read? Um, the Signet edition paperback, um, 1995, I think. It's got the woman with the, I guess it's a woman, somebody with the, like a white sheet over their face. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and one of our Dans is with us. Uh, introduce yourself. Hi, this is Dan. Him's the Red King Flieger. <laughs> um, and this was actually my first time reading the book. Um, I have the 1994 hardcover. Um, with the red and white. Yeah, yeah. It's the iconic one that I, I feel like I see all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just put this one off for some reason. And after seeing how connected it was to Dark Tower, I cannot believe I waited this long. Yeah, you're <laughs> one of our Dark Tower heads. I know, I know. And I'm getting more and more dark towery as we go on, I guess. <laughs> and who else is with us? Oh, is it my turn? Yes. Oh, so this is Aisha Laser Finger Guns here. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> that was the Can't highlight. Can't wait to of talk my... about those. <laughs> right? Um, this was my first time reading it, and I have, like Dan, the 1994 hard copy that nice. my father bestowed when he dropped off his entire collection and. <laughs> drove off so it's got the red white jacket as well nice yeah that was the edition i first read when i was a kid i remember getting this from the library and uh i i've i read this yeah when i've read this probably i think this was my third time uh but i haven't read it since i was um in high school because i read it twice when i was in high school for some reason i think i was just really obsessed with the dark tower lore and um but yeah i i have a very vivid memory of this of reading this which is a very funny memory which is i worked at eddie bauer in the mall and um i used to always eat lunch at arby's and i remember one day bringing my copy of insomnia my gigantic copy to arby's and i was eating and i these very very uh 
you know, cute girls came in, a whole gaggle of them, and I was sitting at, uh, you know, a booth in Arby's with my gigantic Stephen King book, and they all looked at me, like, right at this moment when I had the most amount of food in my mouth. And <laughs> it was like, I remember it just being one of the most uh, embarrassing moments. But um, yeah. That's the day you became a man. It's true. <laughs> Eddie Bauer definitely wasn't the cool store to work at in the mall. So mm. my name tag did not help in that regard either. <laughs> but uh, but hey, it was a good time. But no, I, uh, I'm very excited to talk about Insomnia. This is the kind of book when we started the pod... Uh, I was like, I'm excited to talk about that weird book that never had a film or TV adaptation and uh, that is so weirdly interwoven with The Dark Tower that it might as well be a Dark Tower book. And I guess I want to warn our listeners that uh, for the majority of the conversation, we are not going to be spoiling anything about the future. Uh, We might touch on some of the stuff in the future when we get to King's Dominion, but we will give you ample warning for spoiler alerts because there is some stuff here that ripples throughout. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about some of that later. Uh, Before we get into that, though, I have some history here of the book that I'm just going to break down, including some um, thoughts on King's thoughts on this book, which are very interesting. Uh, It was written between September 10th, 1990 and November 10th, 1993. And um, Viking went out with a first printing of 1.5 million copies uh, when it debuted. And it spent three weeks at number one on the bestseller list, ultimately staying on the list for 16 weeks. And uh, one of the more famous aspects of the marketing of this book was that King actually promoted it by riding his hog uh, throughout the country, going to independent <laughs> bookstores, because uh, he was there. Like a big thing in the news was uh, all the big box retailers, um, sort of, you know, like Barnes and Noble and Borders, but then also like Walmart and uh, you know. Uh, Kmart and all these other things, they were all selling books at cheaper prices and independent bookstores were being hit. Uh, So King, you know, and uh, this was something that would kind of consume him throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. I I recently did a piece and we're going to talk about it when we get there, but uh, about sort of his his. Uh, dalliances with digital publishing around 2000. Mm. Uh, he was he was the first author to ever really digitally publish. Um, I think yeah, his writing the bullet was the very first like ebook I think that was ever uh, published on mm. in like on like a mass scale. And then he also did the plant. Are you guys familiar with the plant? No, the plant yes, was. I haven't read it. Yeah, the, I yeah the plant was a book he was releasing online. Um, uh, via not through any kind of publisher, but just by himself. And he was asking people to pay for uh, installments of it on like an honor system. And his whole point was to sort of say, hey, can we publish without the help of the big, you know, the big publishers? And and so he had sort of this anti-capitalist streak going on uh, in the 90s. And I think that was very interesting. But, you know, the, I just thought that was kind of neat that he, you know, uh, hopped on his hog for the common man, you know, <laughs> yeah. as he did. So... But uh, Can you do UR for Kindle too? I think that uh, was like an experiment. Or yeah. Something. Well, he yeah, and he's done a bunch of like Kindle singles and stuff. Yeah. He's always been very interested in that. I've read a few of them. Well, and he's written a book, couple with Joe Hill that just went straight to uh, to uh, Kindle singles and stuff mm. like that. But but yeah, King he's talked a little bit about this book. He mentioned it specifically in on writing. Um, he called it. I have the quote here. He called it. Uh, he called this and Rose Matter our next book. He called them stiff trying too hard novels uh Mm -hmm. and i think 
one of the reasons he said that was he talks about the idea of plotted novels versus unplotted novels. And he's talked a lot about when he reflects on Insomnia that it was a book that was perhaps too plotted. He was uh, he felt beholden to the plot that he had dreamed up for moment one and didn't allow the story to really evolve in the way he wanted it to. Uh, he said this to Time in 2009 when reflecting on it. He said, when you plot a novel, particularly when you try to make a novel work to fit a foregone conclusion, you know how a book is going to end. And if you sense that a book wants to go in a different direction, you steer it back to that predetermined course at your peril. It's better to let the book be the boss. I remember the sensation of saying, I'm twisting this for my own purposes. It was a book that had one bad guy that really wanted to go off the reservation, and I wouldn't let him. I made him do what I wanted. And as a result, it was tough for me to believe it. And if I can't believe some of these things, I can't expect readers to believe them because, let's face it, they're pretty out there anyway. Uh, that's one quote. And then, uh, so I think he, he, this is a book that maybe, you know, he had tied up so much Dark Tower lore in it and he sort of had this narrative and he was working on it for a long time as well. He, uh, in 1991, he did an interview with the writer Wallace Strobe and uh, he said, I spent about four months, this is three years before the book was actually published, but he said, I spent about four months last year writing a novel called Insomnia. It's a long piece of work. It's about 550 pages long. It's no good. It's not publishable. And I've been writing and publishing books for a long time. Taken piece by piece and chapter by chapter, it is good, but I didn't get this one out of the ground. It broke. And I sometimes go back to it and say, well, I could do this to it. And then something comes up and says, no, you really can't because of this. One image is that archaeological one of trying to get a story out of the ground and saying it broke, but what's a clearer one in this case is to say it's like having a pipe sculpture, except none of the pipes thread together the way they're supposed to. Some do, but a lot of them don't, so it's sort of a mess. My reaction to that was to put the manuscript away, and that's what I've done. But for other books or other stories, when you go through the process of write and rewrite and re-rewrite, there's always, there always comes a point when it looks like crap. But that loss of perspective is a part of the process of writing and rewriting and polishing. You learn to expect it and you learn to count on yourself and to say, it's as good as I ever thought that it would be. And it's better than it was when I first moved to sit down and spend all this time with it in the first place. I just don't see it anymore because I'm too close to it. It's like repeating the same word over and over again for 45 minutes. It loses any sense that it once had, and it's just a sound, but it's still a word to somebody who hears it. And so then the interviewer said, uh, Insomnia, you finished that. That was a completed book. And he said, yeah, the thing that hurts is that the last 80 or 90 pages are wonderful, but things just don't connect. It doesn't have that novelistic roundness that it should have. And maybe someday you'll read it, but it won't be for a long time. And that ended up being three years. So he did crack it, or maybe he didn't, and he just decided, okay, I've got to get this thing out uh, before mm -hmm. it haunts me too much. Does any of that resonate with you guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. when he said 500 pages, I was like, do you forget the 287 more pages that you decided <laughs> to add on to that? Well, that's I think that's maybe the, the that's what the novelistic roundness was. It was a, uh, next yeah. to 250 pages, so... Oh, I was just going to say, I always thought it was weird, his writing process, because most authors, you know, you do outlines, you sort of plan, but mm -hmm. he really does, like, he goes in like jazz and just kind of makes it up, and mm -hmm. it's not recommended that you write like that, but for some reason it works for him. Yeah. Yeah. And in this yeah. case, he, uh, but in this case, it, yeah, he tried to stick too much to a plan, and it, and it didn't quite work for him. Jen, what were you going to say? 
I was going to say, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think like I've got a couple of criticisms of this book, but I don't think it feels plotted to me, uh-huh. but I do think like it feels like three different books to yeah. me, you know? And so I, that makes sense. Like, I feel like the roundness isn't there and I do love the way it ends. So like I ended and I was like, Oh, I want to read it again. And then I kind of was thinking over, like, it's just interesting. I think he kind of nailed what it is that kind of is hard for me to wrap my brain around with this one, you know? But I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad he stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating book, but I do agree that Mm -hmm. you can see the seams, you know what I mean? And you can see the the sweat, too. Like, you can see him sort of taking, like, just to use his pipe metaphor, you can see him sort of taking two pipes that don't connect and, like, stretching and pushing them together and, like, you know, like, kind of fitting a square uh, peg into a round hole uh, a couple times. And, you know, there's so many scenes of long explanations and Mm -hmm. unpacking and then sort of, not retconning, but, like, you know, like, we get all these scenes with uh with the bald doctors where they sort of unpack the whole sort of mystery in very sort of mm-hmm. uh confusing ways and then later you get somebody saying oh yeah don't really trust those guys they're full of shit <laughs> you know? right right and yeah so- or like we can't answer questions all day which is actually one of my favorite parts yeah <laughs> it's like yeah i get you you just want i was to gonna on. say that i agreed in the or i like how jen talked about it because it did there are parts in the book that i really enjoyed and as an overall book it's probably one of my more favorites of the things that I've read. Um, and after like being on the show and like reading other books, it was kind of fun to, for me to recognize certain Easter eggs yeah. with, you know, the tower. But a lot of the parts that caused me to just drag was just, it was getting in between. It was almost like his transitions to certain things was like trying to link different stories together and just kind of like giving me too much detail in a way to like, like here's how it all connects but I don't need all that extra to connect the dot and sometimes I would get exhausted reading I guess you could say trying to get to the next part and like oh this is really great and then it was like and then we're halting the excitement for a second yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a lot of moments where I feel like he's sort of rushing the characters to a another place because he needs to, you know, make that connective tissue. Like specifically, I think in the last third of the book, even though I do think it ends great, I think that mm-hmm. the character spends so much time in that sort of hyper reality that you begin mm-hmm. to lose a sense of place and uh, you start to sort of wonder where they are. And like in relation to the events that are happening, like that was something I found myself doing was I felt like we were just sort of existing in this liminal space for so long that, uh, I don't know, I was becoming sort of detached from the immediacy and the urgency urgency of it and you know he tries yes, to but- like yeah he tries to like keep you like in it by saying well time moves faster here so we got to hurry up <laughs> you know, so. right it's funny you say that because isn't there the one quote that dorance keeps repeating throughout of like um i'm always trying to get to the next thing faster or something like that I, can't mm-hmm. exact quote. Yeah. I feel like that quote might have been haunting him a little bit when he was writing it right. because it does <laughs> yeah. feel like he's he's rushing here and there and everywhere so um, yeah. yeah, and so I have some reviews here. The book was, uh, it was pretty mixed bag in terms of reviews. Uh, I have a handful of them here. Uh, the New York Times actually gave it a fairly positive review, but with some reservations. They said, True, Mr. King develops each nuance of his tale with glacial ponderousness. As always, his text is as full as an old Sears Roebuck catalog with brand name provisions and appurtenances, and not a thought or an action can occur without its being underlined by reference to some popular song or book or phrase. The most elusive specter in this story is a fresh idea or an original turn of phrase. Still, the narrative somehow holds you all the way to its fulminating climax, and the 
is followed by a scary sweet aftermath that neatly resolves the story's exploration of aging and self-sacrifice. And they do say in that, in that, that the story really does hold together. Um, Sort of a nastier uh, review here from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, so they say, This is undeniably second-rate king. Some of the old magic remains, but not much. Bloated beyond all reason with padded details, unnecessary scenes, conversations that seem to go on forever. And the critic sort of declares um, that there's a good 300-page novel in there, but not a good 700-page uh, novel. Uh, mm. The Detroit Free Press also comes at it. Uh, they declared it not scary. And they said Ralph and Lois were not interesting, and the violence was more gratuitous than normal. They all ultimately say a sprawling but essentially empty mess. And I don't really agree with a lot of that, um, which we can talk more about a little bit later. But I also noticed, and you know, this is interesting and something we'll talk more about when we get to the themes, but you know, this book obviously uh, centers around a lot of political themes. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, abortion debate plays a big role in this, and sort of the uh, ideological divide uh, that is abortion is discussed in this and sort of exemplified in some of the characters and I do feel like that political bent several of the reviews I read uh, there was mention made and I think a lot of the not a lot but I think a handful of the critics um, who were pro-life uh, you could sort of sense that coming through and I think there was a resentment on some of the critics' parts in terms of King's politics, because it is pretty clear what his politics are when you read this, or at least mm -hmm. in the broad sense. And so I did, it's kind of like um, when we reviewed Dolores Claiborne, uh, you know, several reviews that were written by men sort of bris bristled at the idea that King doesn't off, you know, he isn't nice enough to men in that book, you know, <laughs> we discussed on the episode. And uh, I do think that it's interesting how, you know, I think sort of, people reviewers personal feelings about abortion because it is a very contentious uh debate uh we're sort of bleeding into the review you could sort of sense it in some of their phrases so uh and i imagine that you know obviously it was a very uh contentious thing so uh it was but it still despite the mixed reviews it was nominated for a bram stoker award for best novel in 1994 although i think every king book is nominated or it wins <laughs> um really and uh and yeah he also, and then also just, um, I just forgot this little bit. It actually was uh, spurred on by uh, a bit of um, a bit of insomnia that King himself, he spent a sleepless four months writing it in 1990 before abandoning the project, which I think is interesting. And, you know, I don't know if you made this connection, Jen, but there is a lot of connective tissue, I think, between Insomnia and a little miniseries we watch called Golden Years, mm -hmm. uh, which came out in <laughs> 1991, um, the year after King spent four s uh, sleepless four months writing it. Uh, Dan, uh, Aisha, are you guys familiar with Golden Years at all? No, not I at all. I have not, not seen it, but I've, well, watched the tra I've seen the trailer. Well, I highly recommend our two-part series on it. It is, uh, it is, it was quite a trip, I have to say. It yeah. is, it is almost unwatchably bad, but uh, we got some good content out of it. But that story, <laughs> uh, that miniseries, it was uh, ten episodes, I believe, or eight episodes, um, somewhere around there, and it aired in 1991, and it was a pretty big failure. Not many people have seen it, and it basically concerns. Um, 
the shop from Firestarter uh, getting involved with some science experiments, one of which uh, causes the main character, who's an elderly janitor, to begin aging backwards. And so he's like in his late 60s, and he basically de-ages while his wife remains the same age, but they have to go on the run to escape the shop and everything, and sort of it becomes this interesting love story between, uh, you know, a woman who remains the same age and her husband who is, you know, growing back into the man that she fell in love with. And there are some lovely themes in there that we discussed, Mm -hmm. but none of them quite manifest. But I definitely uh, saw a lot of connective tissue between uh, Golden Years and Insomnia, specifically in the emphasis on writing elderly characters. Uh, Insomnia, Mm -hmm. the main characters are around 70 years old, which is, you know, rare for a King book and rare for, I think, a lot of popular fiction. And, um, and then also just, uh, you know, he does toy with the concept of de-aging when Lois and Ralph uh, sort of zap some of the life force away from from other people that they see. And they kind of, oh, my God, we're de-aging, you know. And, and there's some lyrical passages about that throughout that I think might have been pulled from uh, when this story was maybe more leaning in the, in the realm of Golden Years. Because Golden Years was essentially a novel that he was working on that didn't quite pan out. And I do wonder if the novel that he's talking about is Insomnia and he sort of just changed paths a little bit but I do actually wonder about that because I I think it's super interesting but uh but yeah ultimately I would say insomnia the book much better than golden years the miniseries would you agree with that down (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah it is it is not great but um yeah (laughs) let's read a synopsis before we dig into the hook and the themes and the other lots of meaty stuff in here to discuss, especially once we get to King's Dominion. But um, I'm going to, I just read, uh, I had an old, old, I think um, pocket books edition from the nineties when I first read it, but I read it on my Kindle this time around. So I'm going to read the Kindle synopsis. You'll lose a lot of sleep. Ralph does. At first, he starts waking up earlier and earlier. Then the hallucinations start. The color, shapes, and strange auras. Not to mention the bald doctors who always turn up at the scene of a death. That's when Ralph begins to lose a lot more than sleep. When he begins to understand why his hitherto mild-mannered friend Ed is getting out of control, dangerously so, and why his hometown is about to become the new Armageddon. Insomnia is a relentless waking nightmare in which the master of horror and suspense guarantees you sure won't rest in peace. Uh, did you guys have any synopses that you wanted to read from your editions? Um, I've got one that's almost like a poem. That's um, Ralph Roberts is seeing some strange happenings in Derry, Maine. He sees auras around human beings that show him the horror threatening him. Sorry, I guess it's more written like a poem than sounds like a poem. <laughs> he sees a nice young research chemist like Ed Deepno turn into a savage wife beater. He sees Charlie Pickering with blood in his eyes and a gleaming knife in his hand. And he sees three little bald doctors in the homes of the dying. And he begins to suspect who they really are. No wonder Ralph stays awake all night. You would too. Insomnia. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, if, if I had to pitch one, I would just say uh, Ralph can't sleep and he starts to see things that are there. Mm. <laughs> Love it. Uh, are um, we making up our own? I, we can. <laughs> like, hey, what's happening? Yeah, we did. <laughs> all, all bets are off. We can yeah. uh, do whatever we like on this podcast. Um, yeah. If there's so, ever a book to do it with, too, this is. The I one. know it's such an odd little book, and it really does ping pong all over the place. But I guess that's yeah. sort of a good uh, segue into a little section we like to call the hook. Ah. Uh. Yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? 
Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. Welcome to The Hook. This is where we discuss the book's hook. What is it about? What do you guys think insomnia is really about? I think sometimes we can really pinpoint something. We can say, uh, you know, The Shining is a story of a haunted house. Um, You know, Carrie is a story about a girl with telekinesis. Uh, Salem's Lot is a story about vampires in a small town. What is insomnia about? What do you guys think? It's a good question. (laughs) It's a good question. It almost feels like King Soup in a way, because like, there's so many different things like you were talking about seeing the seeds of golden years. Like there's a lot of, it, it just kind of feels like a lot of different stories running together. But I would like the one I think that I connected to most was auras. It's about yeah. seeing auras and exploring death. Yeah, absolutely. And the auras, uh, as they're described in the story, they're essentially, you know, these like, uh, these pockets of color that surround everyone and there's like a balloon string that floats above their head and the Mm -hmm. longer the balloon string is the more life they have left the brighter their aura is the more life they have left and uh but then auras like reveal a lot they not only reveal if they're dark and your balloon string is short uh it essentially points towards that you're not doing too well and things aren't looking great and then uh, did anyone keep track of like what the color's been for emotions i was trying to Mm. but that was too much to yeah, and like I feel like they changed a lot. Uh, but, yeah, but <laughs> sometimes murder, I was right? confused. I was like, "Isn't that anger?" But now it's like jealousy, and yeah, now right. it's happiness. Right, and like some of that stuff was pretty cool. Like there was a moment when, uh, like he was on the phone or something, and when like some darkness started, you know, kind yeah. of coming out, the phone turned a different color. But yeah, I thought the colors were mildly inconsistent, or at least I just didn't find sort of a pattern that I was really yeah. grasping to. I did find it interesting that, you know, when there was a, a character who was suffering from some kind of imbalance or disorder, they were kind of surrounded by what he described as like a thunderstruck aura that sort of mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, rippled and shivered. That to me was like a very interesting choice, especially when he sees that that's what Ed, who's sort of defying the ideas of purpose and random, which we'll discuss later, that he's also surrounded by that and is sort of this agent of chaos, which I think is uh, is super interesting. But mm-hmm. any other thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I, I, go, you I go, kind Dan. of, uh, yeah, I was because I just watched the uh, Doctor Sleep uh, director's cut, <laughs> um, so which good. was great. I really enjoyed it. But I kept thinking of the ore as sort of as that mist that comes out of the people. You know, it's more of the shine ability, mm-hmm. but in the same way, they kind of vampired energy from people. Um, but I agree with Jen that it is kind of a king soup because it yeah. really does feel like three distinct novels. Because um, mm-hmm. even in the, in the first half is pretty much just him, Ralph, kind of losing his mind to the insomnia. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and then it just kind of takes a turn into something completely different. And I was trying to connect insomnia with like pro-choice. And, you know, I was like, I mm-hmm. guess you could. And it just it, it felt kind of scattershot. Um, yeah. Still enjoyed it. But, yeah, I think it could have been reduced down um, <laughs> maybe a couple hundred pages part of me yeah. was uh, almost oh, thinking go. that like how he addresses when you were talking about how, that he planned this out is just like, kind of that hey i need two sides that are divisive and he kind of like looked at what was a current event going on and just kind of inserted it in so there were times like, i kind of agree where it just seemed that the the reason why they were fighting is like oh yeah it's because of abortion and let, let me describe all these things to you and kind of distract and then suddenly mm-hmm. we're back into the story yeah. yeah. 
Well, and it's funny because this one falls in, like, if you look at, there's a there's a four-book stretch with Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, Insomnia, and then Rose Matter, where he's, like, looking at domestic violence or intimate mm-hmm. partner violence. And this is one, but this one feels the most off to me. Um, and I've got a lot of thoughts about that. But that is one, that's the element of it that I really did not like and really... Um, rubbed me the wrong way I think the auras is the part that I connected with the most and that I really really enjoyed I think as like it's gonna make me sound crazy but I feel like I'm a pretty empathetic person and I liked seeing that kind of him play with that like what does it look like when someone is sick or how does and I think there's so much emotion in this book and it was honestly pretty hard to read in some places especially at this moment in time um but I I loved like the idea that your emotions color all of your actions you know and I think Uh that's something that he's really good at getting into and this might be the clearest that I've seen him do that and I really liked that part Yeah. yeah I think it's interesting that we're talking about how there's three different Uh, books here. And I think that's a good way to put it because, you know, Mm -hmm. like you said, Dan, it begins with Ralph struggles with insomnia after his wife passes away and also his relationship with uh, Lois, one of his neighbors and his uh, sort of roommate, housemate, uh, uh, Bill McGovern. And, you know, we're sort of seeing this community of, you know, elderly people in Derry who sort of are all banding together in retirement, things like that. And then we've got the B story, which is sort of of this, um, uh, you know, the abortion debate, the idea of extremism, um, people on various sides uh, clashing over the arrival of a woman named Susan Day, who's sort of like a Gloria Steinem figure, I guess, who is coming mm-hmm. to speak and um, and a very pro-choice advocate. And uh, obviously people are mad about that. And then that's sort of intermersed with the exploration of domestic violence, as evidenced with uh, Ed Deepno, one of um, Ralph and his ex-wife's friends, who sort of like took a turn for the dark side once he got radicalized. And um, and we'll talk more about that because that's really (laughs) like relevant today. And Mm. um and then, and then Ed's wife, Helen. And then the third story, which is the cosmic story, which is the uh, uh, Ralph and Lois are caught in the middle of, of, of a sort of cosmic event that is bigger than them. And there's many worlds and there's these conduits between worlds and there's something called the Crimson King. And uh, and then we're kind of playing with, with fire and sort of the larger Dark Tower universe. And they're all sort of crammed together. And I think King, you know, like I said, I think we see the knots where he's tying them all together. But, um, but overall, I think like, and that's sort of what the review said too, is that even when, uh, even though this book like maybe doesn't work piece by piece, it does work as sort of a, a piece of entertainment. You know, I was I was always on board with the story, uh, especially because I think I really like the characters and and I like the um, you know I think the Easter eggs and the uh, the Dark Tower intrigue is great for King fans. I know that I read this uh, after you know this was one of the later King books I read. I had read probably you know fifteen King books before I read this one, so it was it was very cool for me the first time I read it. I had no clue there was going to be all these Dark Tower references. And so when there were, it was extremely exciting to me. I remember it being like a very thrilling reading experience. But um, but yeah, so I think that there's a lot of themes that stand out to me. Um, you know, there's the idea I... of fate versus free will, um, mm-hmm. which is something that I think is discussed via the purpose and the random, which is epitomized by these uh, little bald doctors, two of whom sort of serve the purpose and they send people off uh, when it is their time to die. And then there is uh, Atropos, who is the random, and he's a crazy little fucker who, uh, with a rusty scalpel who, <laughs> you know, kills people when it's not their time. And it's sort of, you know, and King obviously loves to struggle with 
concepts of fate and free will uh, throughout the Dark Tower, but also in many of his other books, and it sort of really comes to a head here. Um, you go ahead. I thought that just occurred to me too, and two in two streams of uh, dealing with like ores and color was like part of me felt that uh, King wanted to use the ores as this like he relied too I think a little too heavily on it and just saying with this kind of a uh, discussion that story B that was going on with the abortion if we or like how we interact with people we think we know for for so long and how kind of our disposition which what if our disposition or how we approach people changed if we were able to see their ores if we were able to see kind of what's affecting them because there's points where Ralph is interacting especially with Lois from our Lois to like her just being Lois, he kind of gets to see how Bill and some other people are functioning outside of the mask that they put on yeah. to mm-hmm. the rest of the world. And it's kind of like, how do you respond or how do you react to people when you kind of are able to see beneath the mask? So I yeah. think there was a little bit too much reliance on that. And then on the other side of that, as he's seeing, he and Lois are seeing more and more things. It's almost this idea of humanity of where, we are always asking questions and then we get more information and we, we're not satisfied with those answers. We have to ask more questions. We have to know exactly why where Ralph mm-hmm. is throughout this entire story is constantly asking questions. And there's a point where Lois is like, sometimes you just have to leave it off. You, we can't know everything, even if we know a little bit more than someone else. So mm-hmm. that's just a thought that played in my mind as I was listening to you guys talk just now. Yeah. It's interesting because there's so much like rage in this book from care like tertiary characters mostly, but there are two instances where people will go on these rants about abortion and then they'll come back and they'll say like they'll reveal like their their anecdote that like is their heartbreaking story that really colors a lot of that rage, you know, and I think um, <laughs> in therapy, I've learned that anger is like one of the easiest experience or emotions to experience because a lot of times it's tied with action. So you feel like you can do something about it. And so we like color we are we cover our emotions with anger and I think that plays out a lot in this book and I do think it's interesting like what you were saying um, if we could see how people were feeling would we be more willing to listen to them or would we be able to find a little bit more common ground you know Mm -hmm. I don't know how far he goes into really unpacking that but I think I definitely saw that kind of playing out like what you were saying yeah what other themes do you guys see Dan what about you um, I was trying to connect the cutting of the balloon string with maybe the cutting of an umbilical cord mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, there's sort of this passage from one life into the other. You know, when a child is born, it's officially born once the umbilical cord gets caught, uh, cut. But then when people go on to like the next realm, uh, that has to be cut as well. And I was trying to see if he was making a larger point about, you know, pro-choice. But I, I don't know. A lot of things I was like trying to dance <laughs> to, to make it fit. Right. Um I like what but you're think, saying, though, and I think it ties to the idea of Ka being a wheel. Um, right, right. Yeah, and also, so. and even like the names of the bald doctors. So yeah. it, the Atropos, um, that's actually a Clothos. Greek god. Yeah. Atropos. Uh, yeah, it's like a Greek god, but it's a goddess of fate and it was destiny. To, whereas yeah. he's actually more of like a random uh, character. I don't Again, I was like, well, maybe this is fitting. <laughs> you know, I mm-hmm. feel like I was in high school trying to write a paper about a book that I didn't really <laughs> get that into, but. Yeah, and then the other ones are Clotho and I believe Lex. 
Lachesis is what my audio audiobook said. Lachesis. There we go. Lachesis. So. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but I looked it up Greek before mythology. recording and I have it somewhere in my notes, but then of course I lost it. So, uh, well. you know, but I like went to <laughs> YouTube and there was explanation. There was like people reading it out loud. <laughs> yeah. But I, okay, I, I do so think. I, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, I pulled it up. There's Clotho the spinner. I don't know how to say Lachesis the allotter. So the amount of time and then the tropos, the inflexible. So it ends huh. that time, but it's like chaotic. Oh, okay. The nice. inflexible. That's I like that nickname. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I do think too the uh, the idea of sort of the rage that can develop in normal people. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of that right now politically, where mm-hmm. people that would normally be totally calm are screaming in stores at waiters and staff. Uh, you know, really passionate about their views, even though they seem kind of crazy. Uh, so seeing, you know, the, some of the men in the book get just getting so raging and just, you know, they can't even breathe because they're just seething. I think mm-hmm. King does a good job of capturing that and just how scary that can be. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something I thought about a lot, especially just right at the beginning. Um, you know, I remember when I first read uh, Insomnia, I didn't know a lot about, you know, I was probably... 14, 15, and I didn't know a lot about abortion. It wasn't a topic that I'd ever discussed with my parents or in school. And so the concept was very foreign to me. And and then especially the idea, there was something very deeply disturbing to me when Ed sort of drives this truck off the road that's filled with fertilizer, and he begins claiming that the fertilizer is carrying dead baby parts, uh, like um, babies who have been aborted and things of that nature. And it's really crazy, but the thing is, like, that discourse, you know, that did exist to some degree, like at that mm-hmm. time and the, on the fringes. And now, obviously, uh, the idea of protecting children and saving children has become adopted by the extreme far right who um, don't seem interested in like actual ch- child sex trafficking that's happening in the world. They, they're more convinced of the conspiracy theories, particularly under the QAnon banner, um, that mm. Democrats are cannibals and pedophiles who have sex dungeons and kill babies and um, like to what's the adrenochrome they they there's a it's a, it's like literally the plot of Dr. Sleep like they drink babies blood and it like you know to some degree and it keeps them young uh mm-hmm. like people actually believe this stuff and it's mm-hmm. it's utterly terrifying and so but the thing is I've 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 read a lot about uh people who are like how do I deal with my uncle or my grandpa like they are suddenly on Twitter all the time and they believe all this QAnon stuff they watch these videos on YouTube they get radicalized and the thing that I mm-hmm. that I was thinking was you know Ed and like you know and Ed is framed and we'll talk about more in Heroes and Villains but Ed is framed as somebody who is uh was sort of like um, used by Atropos in a way to um, become his pawn. He's like a chess piece. But I do like that King doesn't really let Ed off the hook. Like this wasn't a total, yeah. um, like, mm-hmm. like this wasn't just rant. Like this wasn't just It wasn't possession. a total conversion. There right. was something there. Yeah. yeah. And I think that even though he was, you know, him and Helen were good together to some degree in the past, I think that maybe this, I think in real life, that issue, like the issue of abortion can drive two people apart. And, uh, and I think once, and especially as that people become more and more radicalized. And I think Ed was radicalized and sort of, you know, and then the domestic abuse incident that occurs between him and Helen, I don't blame that on Atropos, you know, I think that mm-hmm. that was a, a real thing that happened between that couple, and he was heading this way. And it's kind of like a Henry Bauer situation. It's that, you know, the the grand evil sees the the human evil and uses it to 
its benefit. And so I thought that that was very interesting and, and weirdly relevant today, just because I think a lot of people are becoming unrecognizable once they become immersed in these sort of uh, grand, larger-than-life conspiracy theories. Um, and the idea that Ed is introduced as being this uh, conspiracy theorist and... Um, and then sort of becomes like the leader of like the local anti-abortion movement, which is, you know, these are the people that we elevate into positions of power, which obviously our president spews conspiracies day in and day out. So it's uh, it's 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 fascinating stuff in that regard. And I think also, you know, it made me I think, too, if we're thinking about ideas of purpose, you know, versus random fate versus free will, things of that nature. I, I also saw an interesting theme in. The idea that, you know, Ralph sort of seems resigned after his wife dies, like, you know, well, what is my life going to be now? I'm alone. Mm -hmm. And he sort of is surprised by the idea that, you know, even at his age, he's able to fall in love again and meet someone uh, and see someone in a new light and sort of find that surprise. Whereas Ed and Helen, I think they, you know, um, it seemed on the outside that they were like an ironclad couple. And then obviously this thing came between them. And in the end, she, you know, uh, not only like forges a life for herself, but she also, you know, realizes she likes girls. So <laughs> it's like, uh, I think that there is this sense that the hand that you think you're dealt is not the one, you know, ultimately that you always are, that things can change and things can happen, something random versus uh, the idea of whatever you think your purpose is. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, any other themes that are sticking out to you guys? Um, I want, I don't know if this is necessarily a theme, but there is, this is, I mean, I don't, and I also don't know if we would consider this a Dark Tower novel, maybe Dark Tower adjacent, but these are the Dark Tower novels that I love the most. I don't really, I'm not a big tower head, but I love the ones that aren't set in Midworld. So as I was mm -hmm. like the, uh, the drawing of the three is my favorite of the seven. Um, and I just loved how this connected to everything else. And like, if you look at it in the grand scheme of like on the red string board with all of his novels, it fits into such an interesting place and it connects to so many different things. And I just like the, now that I knew what was going to happen, when I was reading it. I was just kind of geeking out every time there was a little Easter egg or there was a little tie or like, oh, that kind of reminds me of this thing that's like totally not connected at all, but it shares like some of the same feeling, you know? Yeah. And there yeah, is I, this. I think oh, too, the, uh, oh, I was going to say, I think the, the theme of aging, um, yeah. there's a reference that, you know, the older people feel like they're sort of pushed to the edge of society the same way that mm -hmm. children are and that it's yeah. a, the world is largely run by middle-aged people. And I think that's the theme King comes back to often, you know, if you look at The Shining, um, Danny's connection with Doc or uh, Dick Holleran. Um, you know, the older people and the children kind of recognize that they they're not they're not important anymore in the eyes of most people. And I just think that's kind of you know it's this very sad thing. Is you know if we all make it that long, there does become this sense that you know my time has passed and you know the world has moved on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it also kind of connects to it too because there's that um, feeling of like the kids aren't seen too. You know, and I think like looking at this compared to it it's such an interesting kind of like companion you know yeah. i definitely like that he had or i think ralph mentions or starts talking about the three sides of dairy or the three cities of dairy and mm -hmm. it's very much i think applicable to any kind like any place you are you have the young kids who are having their own imaginary world and it's i think i like this story because you had older people kind of almost getting a chance to relieve relive youth even though it was a dangerous situation they're like shooting out lasers and they're like seeing <laughs> bright colors and climbing under trees and still 
able to do things and still able to change and be adaptive. And, and I think we, growing up for me, I was afraid of getting older because a lot of my uh, older family members were dying from different diseases. But as I'm getting older and seeing the options of like living older, it's like, what do I want to do? I want to live to be 105 and do all these cool things. And you see that more. So I think it's, I think one of the best parts about this book for me was having the older characters, even though I was a little annoyed with two of the, the two main ones, <laughs> it yep. still was, it, it was still nice to have old people be the center stage and doing like going on an adventure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wondering um, if they'll break their hip. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, Dan, I'm curious before you read insomnia, did you know that there was dark tower content in here? Did you know that there was connective tissue? No, I had no idea. I kind of went into insomnia with like, no, I, I heard there were connections and like I would see stuff, but I didn't know what to. Yeah. And I just knew that it was in dairy. So I figured like at least it was connected. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't know either. And, you know, Randall and I hang out socially at a safe distance in person sometimes. <laughs> and uh, he did a good job of kind of not revealing that. And then I remember saying something like, oh, yeah, they've already referenced the uh, you know, the Crimson King and you were, you know, you did a good job of kind of holding, you know, holding back and not letting me know. So it, yeah. it, it was cool. And I would say, yeah, that, that third, I think you put it well, the, the cosmic story that is going on. I was really into that just because I'm anything that ties to the uh, Crimson King, especially because you don't really know a ton about him from other books. This is probably mm-hmm. the one that spoke the most about him and gave mm-hmm. the most insight into him as a per or, you know, character. Yeah. Yeah. I have some quotes that uh, we can discuss in King's Dominion about like just because I was saying I was thinking that too, like there, there is sort of this mystery around that character. And, and so I kind of wrote down every passage that really unpacked a little bit something about him because I just thought that that was mm. super interesting. So um, cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously much to discuss here. And I like the phrase King Soup. I think that really does uh, <laughs> speak a lot to what this book is. And there's so much that's happening in it. And, uh, and again, it, and it does feel like you can feel the plotting in that sense, but you can also like, I know what you mean when you say like this book doesn't feel heavily plotted because it does ping pong around so much. And it, it Mm -hmm. is this kind of sense of King soup. So I don't know. It's, it's one of those where, uh, you know, I think we, we had a, uh, podcast recently, like a bag of bones episode where we, where somebody asked if we could sit down with King, but only talk to him about one book, what would you want to talk about? Mm. And I said the Tommy knockers, mm. because I know that that was a very tumultuous book for him. And, uh, and that he doesn't like it. But I think this one would be interesting too, because it sounds like it was sort of a labored process, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I just think that would be interesting. Well, I, I, I think another thing too, that's interesting is just like, it's almost like that Simpsons did it thing. King has, you know, there's a, person getting hit by a car which later happened to mm-hmm. him there's yeah. an airplane being hijacked for a terrorist attack which obviously mm-hmm. happened later on and it's you know and even with the people freaking out over politics he really had like a good foresight on what would happen in society right yeah yeah and it would be a, interesting and, yeah. to see like a plot rundown of like the bullets of what happens in the story because you would look at it and you're like <laughs> what the fuck is this about <laughs> He just uh, vomited on the page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, and that thing, on that thing. Yeah. That's kind of how my actually, mind works anyway. I think that's yeah, kind yeah. of a good, I think that's kind of a good transition into our next section, uh, structure and format.
Welcome to Structure and Format, where we discuss the structure and format. Uh, there's probably not a lot to say here. It's pretty straightforward, but I do think that there's a few interesting uh, sort of, um, you know, formatting decisions that he makes here. I mean, King always likes italics um, when he he usually uses them as a means to sort of illustrate a memory sort of spiking its way to the surface in somebody or a scrap of dialogue or an old image, something that sort of brings um, a moment from the past into the present. And here he uses italics very liberally. <laughs> so like mm -hmm. basically whenever they're speaking in the higher plane that they ascend to, uh, it goes into into italics and this is something that I be and then he also uses it in the ways that he's always used it in the past so I will say that I found the italics after a while to be a little bit grating um, and they started to drive me a little bit crazy uh, especially because <laughs> there were times like and then he has to start like when during those long conversations with the fates it's uh, he has to start putting who's speaking at the beginning of those like it's a play mm. sometimes <laughs> and I just remember mm -hmm. thinking I'm like I'm like all right too much it's like when he does this thing where he tells where he has a character like monologue but he's like the monologue that they're giving is of a story and there's dialogue within the story and somebody is like just <laughs> narrating a story with all the dialogue and it goes on for like pages <laughs> and he's got like eight thousand quotation marks like in every paragraph it drives me a little <sighs> bit crazy so uh but yeah but that's hey that we love him for all his eccentricities um, any other sort of formatting things or structural things or moments when maybe the perspective or the point of view or anything maybe pulled you out or pulled you in? I, I would actually say when they, uh, when Ralph and Lois, when they enter like what the hospital to confront the little bald doctors, I was having some trouble visualizing exactly what was going on. Um, you know, going into this sort of other realm, passing through floors and usually I can see that stuff in my mind's eye but I was like wait what is going on and I had to reread a few of those passages yeah there's a similar moment at the end when he's in the plane with Ed and uh, yes, I, yeah. I, I ultimately like it because I think it's a cool image but where he sort of the plane's really small, so when he stands up fully, his head is poking out the top of it. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's like a good bit of comedy, but I, I, it was very similar where, like, it, it, it becomes chaotic almost, you know, and especially in mm -hmm. that same thing, like when the Crimson King sort of manifests as his mother, um, you know, to the right of the plane. And so they're all like basically floating in free air and all of these images are sort of manifesting. And I, it just feels to me like, the, I guess that's what I meant when I said I become like sort of unstuck in place sometimes. Like I don't feel grounded. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and maybe that, you know, doesn't matter to some people. But for me, it's like when I don't have a good sense of where the characters are, I sometimes uh, struggle with, um, I don't know, feeling comfortable or cemented I into the action flow. yeah mm -hmm. yeah and i remember yeah. even when i was a kid feeling like dis very disoriented by the whole sequence with the crimson king at the end when they're in the air because it's so hard to envision what like the metaphysical sort of plane that they're on you know yeah no yeah. i wish there was a video or you know a movie or a scene because <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just stopped cough. you know I just stopped pushing back on it and just sort of let it mm -hmm. wash over me. Um, I was like, all right, I'm not going to be really able to visualize this, but I'll just keep on trucking. Yeah. 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 That I think is my biggest problem that I have reading the Dark Tower books when they're in Midworld. I just have the hardest time visualizing Midworld and I always forget where they are. Um, and so like the first time I read this, 
um, I think I was trying to figure out what was going on in this section. And I was like, what the hell is a catfish now? And I think <laughs> the second time, like when I knew what was going to happen. And this I find with a lot of Stephen King that I reread. Once I know what's going to happen, I can really enjoy the intricacies a little bit more. Because this time I read that. Well, actually, I listened to that on um I was like, this is really cool because I wasn't trying to figure out what was happening because I already knew. And so I do think that kind of takes you out a little bit, but I enjoyed it the second time more. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Also, listening to it, the italics didn't bother me at all because I didn't see them. <laughs> right. Who do, who does the audiobook? Um, I don't know. Some, it, some, nobody of note. Some guy. Oh. I don't uh, know if I would recommend this audiobook. That if, especially if you're prone to migraines, the musical cues are very jarring. They <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, got the job done, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it's uh, it's Eli Wallach, I believe. Oh, Wallach. I know that name. Um, he I, I sounds to real certain, old, so it works. Yeah, he's he's like a famous stage actor, but I ah. I was listening to some of the audiobook, but yeah, the musical outros were just Ooh. very jarring. It was like electric yep. guitars. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah, another thing about this, and I I believe I discussed this with Needful Things when we were discussing this, but it is interesting to see King's writing get more cinematic as he, you know, after he, he began seeing more and more of his properties being made into movies and TV shows. Um, he writes mm-hmm. scenes often like they are, you know, an introductory scene in a movie or things like that. And, uh, and so mm-hmm. I think maybe the sequences that take place in the more metaphysical aspects. He's thinking a lot about um, special effects and what it would look like in that regard. And that's the thing is like, it's better manifested by a director or somebody like that Mm -hmm. than it is on page sometimes. Um, How do you all feel about like him writing in that style? um, That would annoy me. I feel like that, I guess, you know what I mean? I don't know. For me, that would be kind of annoying to, realize the author is kind of just thinking about what it would look like in a movie like i get it but yeah no i i agree there's a degree of like artistic hubris that you know when you write something assuming it probably will be made into a movie which when you go over his career that's what's been happening for several Mm -hmm. decades um but i also think some of the issues he's had like with the stanley kubrick and the shining not being adapted the way he wanted it i think he's almost trying to get in front of it and mm-hmm. making it so that if you want to make a movie, you're going to have to do it the Stephen King way or the highway. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. The story doesn't work. The yeah. dark half is one that feels particularly like this is going to be a movie the way yeah. it's presented visually. You know. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's super interesting. But I do agree, it is a little bit annoying sometimes. Like sometimes I just think about you know he still has his lyrical passages and his uh, thoughtful musings. These you know his chapters where he sort of just crawls around inside a character's head for a while. But I think back to like Mm -hmm. Salem's Lot and in Salem's Lot, you know, obviously he wasn't thinking about his stuff getting made into movies. And, um, and there, I felt like there was more sort of, uh, I don't know, more, I guess, prosy is the word. Like he, he luxuriated a little bit Mm -hmm. more in description and in, uh, not so much setting a scene so much as exploring a scene or exploring a place. You know, I remember in Salem's Lot, there's all these beautiful passages about the town itself, you know? And Mm -hmm. I feel like, and I feel like he, he does that in it with dairy a lot, but then we don't get that same sense of place or immersion. There is a, he does sort of convey a kind of an icky quality to dairy in this. Um, Uh but at the same time i don't i never felt quite as immersed in the world as i did in it or you know like a castle rock story so Mm -hmm. cool all right let's head on over to a section we like to call heroes and villains i'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown welcome to the losers club (laughs) asshole 
Welcome to Heroes and Villains. This is where we discuss the characters, uh, who we liked, who we didn't, and who we were indifferent to. I guess we should start with our leading man, Ralph Roberts. Uh, what do we think about Ralph? How is he as a protagonist? Does he does he speak to you? Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I love mean. Ralph. <laughs> He was yeah, just it, there to carry the story. It, it for seems, me. you know, his best days are kind of behind him, and it is that sense of kind of waiting to die. And, you know, it's a little boring. Um, I did like, though, when um, was it Natalie was abused by Ed, and then he just storms out to go beat this guy up. And yeah. it's that thing where you'll. I've, I've been in situations like this where an older man will step in to try to fight someone, and you have to be like, dude, you're so old. You cannot. This is like, <laughs> you know what I mean? But in yeah. your mind, you're still this 18 year old boy, but you're just, your body cannot physically do it. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's brave. It's also kind of stupid, um, mm-hmm. but I did respect him in that part. And you know, she was like, "Oh, my hero!" And you know that as an old man, you love when a you know younger woman kind of like reminds you that you still have some masculinity. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's some interesting passages about Ralph's uh, upbringing. The idea of writing an older character, and especially when you're engaging in uh, you know um, political issues that were obviously, you know, the world's changed a lot since he was young. He has a, uh, you know, there's a section early in the book where he talks about how his his mind and morals were sort of shaped, you know, long ago. And it's hard mm. for him to sort of wrap his mind around the things of, uh, of today's youth. And there's another section later in the book. Um, I, I like this little section here. I'm just going to read it. Maybe you had to live to be 70 before you could fully appreciate how hard it was to escape your upbringing. He was a man whose education on how to be a man had begun before Adolf Hitler's rise to power, and he was still a prisoner of a generation that had listened to H.V. Kaltenborn and the Andrews sisters on the radio, a generation of men that believed in moonlight cocktails and walking a mile for a camel. Such an upbringing almost negated such nice moral questions as who was working for the good and who was working for the bad. The important thing was not to let the bullies kick sand in your face, not to be led by the nose. And I think that I like that the book sort of reckons with the idea that he is an older man who's very set in his ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the book is about him sort of, you know, opening up to new things, whether that's, you know, uh, Helen's sort of activism and and beliefs on abortion, because, you know, Ralph doesn't seem to have strong feelings on it either way. He sort of looks at both sides as, you know, you're each like you're going to kill each other because you're so intense about this. And uh and then, um, and then also with uh, uh, with love, you know, just with the idea that he could be with someone after his wife passes away. Um, I think these are things that he struggles with, and I find it to be one of the more compelling parts of the character in a way that, you know, King isn't just writing Ralph like a 70-year-old like he's 40 years old, you know, like some people might mm-hmm. do. Um, so I do think that there, you know, King really does take pains to sort of get in the mind of somebody who has lived a very long life and has lost a lot of the things, the job, the wife, you know, a lot of these things that sort of defined who he was. And he's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of spinning off on his own now. I think I have, it's like a tale of two Ralphs for me because <laughs> I do love the introspection with him and I love like how he's processing Carolyn's death and how he's processing his own death. And I love the section of him like 
having insomnia. And it reminded me a lot of the beginning of Duma Key, which I really like when he's taking the walks on the sand. Yeah. And there's that kind of erosion of his mental state. And I love that part of him. What I don't like about him is how he interacts with the other characters. It really frustrated me. And I think, Randall, what you were saying, a lot of it is because he's writing what a 70-year-old man who grew up in that time period probably would, like like maybe a, a favorable version of that age person with those experiences and I'm not necessarily saying it's bad or King didn't write him well I think it just bugged me because I'm so because of where we are right now it Mm. just there's a lot of things in this book that were really hard for me to read and I think hearing Ralph like he kept I didn't like how he treated Lois Um, yes yeah I and he kept no no no, yeah um I, I just I I understand why, and I think King was fair to Ralph. I just didn't particularly like it, but I loved the bookends of his story. I really liked. Yeah, I'd I love to hear feel more. Like you hit it on the head. I'd love to hear you guys talk more about um, him and Lois's relationship and what it was that you struggled with. The whole hour Lois thing, and Aisha, if you want to go, <laughs> I've got yeah. a lot of thoughts. But... <laughs> I had a whole section about uh, our Lois because just. And how they treated them, and not just Ralph, but also like Bill McGovern, which uh-huh. we'll get into him separately as as a character and my frustrations with him. But it was just this idea that Lois was, again, I think this goes back to the last episode I was on it where Mel and I were talking about this idea of like females in King's books. Uh-huh. And you have Lois here as like a, a lead character, and yet Ralph is kind of just... Tr- I- <laughs> See, this is where I'm getting caught because I, it frustrated <laughs> me, A, that he kept comparing with his old wife and the nagging of yet like they're sophisticated, forward-thinking women, but at the same time in their head, they keep thinking of them as like chortling, uh, mm-hmm. gaggling, uh, like mm-hmm. gossiping, going yeah. shopping, still mm-hmm. needing them for their help or protection and looking to them to, you know, make the final decision uh and ralph like what jen was saying i really do agree what where she was going with that is like ralph as an overall overall thinking person or uh, reflection on old age was really interesting but as a character it was like you tried to excuse how he presents himself because the time that uh, king wrote it who he's writing about but at the same time it was frustrating how He's talking about growing and changing, but yet still the the cringeworthy things he would say and do, which I guess is good writing because it's representative of those people are. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I just, I don't know, I couldn't connect with Ralph. I just at times found him boring, thought he was always so dismissive and condescending. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was kind of like ready to be done with him and yeah. wanted to see more of Lois. And I was really upset that they kind of played Lois off as this like still needing to come to Ralph as a damsel in the stress but then at the yep. same time she's like I don't need you to t- I don't know but she yeah, did well- oh my god the t- the part that drove me so crazy I'm sorry yeah. Um, when he drinks her aura I was like yeah. just let Lois go do it she's got a full aura and she's a capable person <laughs> she saw the insane. green man <laughs> she did I know sorry I didn't mean to jump in <laughs> oh no no I was gonna say though I see Lois didn't feel very developed for me uh-huh. and the fact you know the fact that it's it, pretty much up until the point that she admits she sees the auras we don't really know a lot about her she's kind of this background character for 400 pages of the book 
And then finally, we start to learn a little bit about her. And I, you know, that would have been a good time to maybe strengthen that relationship, make it a little deeper. She seemed like mm-hmm. she was just someone who would hang out with him, help yeah. pass the time. And that was, I don't know, she didn't seem to have too many, like, I don't know, not a really interesting character arc for me either. She just kind of was there when Ralph needed her. Right. Didn't do they, a whole lot other than background. They tried to make you feel, I feel like the story of Lois's son coming and trying to take her or put her in a home was like your our moment to like see Lois as this like developed and a, a strong woman who's still living on her own. But it just kind of still fell short because... I don't know. It, it always seemed like she was contradicting herself, not like directly, but like as a character in her mm-hmm. mannerisms and her speaking and her decisions. Yeah. It just frustrated me because it was like, you're okay. We're going with Lois who's got her shit together and she's not going to take it. And she's never been stupid this whole time, but no, suddenly she is stupid this whole time. And I'm, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a moment where he says her two great talents are saying something stupid and eating a lot of chocolate in the Whitman yeah. sampler. And I think I paraphrased Ouch. that, but I was like, <laughs> and she says that about herself. Yes. It's like, ah, so I was listening to the Stephen King cast episode about this. And he said, if you swap Lois and Ralph, that I think the book would be a lot stronger. And I really agree mm-hmm. with that. I think I wish she did so much more. And I think you could kind of see Ralph grow in connection with that. And it just, it the, as much as I think I liked the connection between them, like on a higher level, not to like make a pun, but like <laughs> as, as like old age love, I liked that and I thought it was sweet, but I just did not like the way she was written and the way, um, he dealt with her particularly there was a part where she was crying and he kept saying well she's not pretty now she used to be pretty yeah it just really rubbed me the wrong way yeah there's a lot of leering over her which is i mean there's a lot of leering in general i have i have some in pound cake but it's uh but yeah and i i agree with a lot of what you're saying and it it reminded me of something i was gonna say in structure and format that i forgot but um i there's that scene later when uh ralph is sort of reckoning with um or or you know what's the word i'm looking for sort of bartering with the little bald doctors about uh saving the life of you know somebody who we don't know yet and uh they're gonna Mm -hmm. put that thing in his arm and we can only hear a little bit of what ralph is saying and that's and i realize that that's like the only time in the book where we move to lois's point of view and uh and it seems like it was motivated by uh this you know practical need is that well they, we can't give away what ralph is actually saying in this moment so we have to move mm-hmm. to lois in that moment and then she sees the green man i believe and that to me is uh it just I, I i found that very jarring and it made me realize i'm just like man i wish we did i wish we got out of ralph's head a little bit more like king is mm-hmm. so good at at pinging us around to different characters and letting us explore other people's heads a little bit and he doesn't really do that here he kind of keeps us really corralled in ralph's head and uh mm-hmm. and so we're viewing everything through his lens so yeah i think that's a really interesting point that idea of swapping them and it, yeah because I, th- I have in my notes at one point you know damsel in distress too um yep. she just uh and i think that does like you said Flieger, it does sort of not allow her to really flourish in the way that she probably could um yeah which is too bad uh other things about these characters that you were maybe drawn to or, or put off by? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that. I, I, I have a question. Yeah. What do you all imagine when they describe Lois with Spanish eyes? <laughs> I don't know what that means. I guess brown eyes, maybe? Because I, I, I was trying to figure it out and it kept distracting me. But like, I think one of you mentioned how 
throughout the story, King drops a little bit more tidbits of like how Lois is look, how Lois looks and how Ralph views her. Mm-hmm. And it, it rubbed me in this, it, I don't want to say the wrong way, but it was weird how the development of how Ralph saw her and how King played with a, like older people and sex and mm-hmm. like how do like because I feel you know I remember reading or seeing an article when I was younger maybe like in college about this retirement home where all the old people were banging and everybody was shocked <laughs> and I'm just kind of like do old people look still I, I, I guess they King do. Tr- yeah was yeah. King trying to go with like the demure and why because I mean like we know old people have sex and we know that they're interested in each other, but it just seemed like this coy teenage, you know, interaction or young love interaction where they don't really know what they're doing. And they're talking like, it just, it seemed like childish. And I don't know if that was purposeful too, with the whole uh, reverse aging as well. It had like an old fashioned kind of feel to it, you know? Mm. Yeah. It felt more companionate than romantic, but then there would be these parts where it got sexual. And I was like, this is not really what they're, (laughs) Like, they're the kind of friends that would want to give a hug or something, but they're mm-hmm. not. But then, like, she would be moving, and he would, like, feel a tingle in his pants. It's just so Yeah, they love to talk about Ralph's <laughs> tingles. No, it's, like, it's yeah. just funny because, like, King obviously is is incredibly horny, which we've talked about on many episodes. And it's just fun because, like, even when he's writing these 70-year-old characters, they're horny like his 20-year-old characters are, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Ralph just gets a boner every time anything happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> it cracks me up. Uh and we'll talk more about that uh, shortly when we get to our little pound cake section. But um, another character I think is interesting is Ed Deepnow. Um, Ed, to mm. me, uh, I mentioned earlier that I did find, you know, he's the kind of character I always love in King, where he's sort of this um, rotten kind of character who is often a pawn of the larger, more cosmic forces. I do kind of... I'm, I am slightly bummed out that he sort of disappears for like a really huge chunk of the story and then just kind of reemerges. I wanted him to be maybe a more formidable foe, but, uh, but yeah, I do think he's interesting. And, um, and I just kind of think his whole, like his designation within the world is interesting. Uh, one of the bald doctors describes him um, as him having no designation in either random or purpose of all the people on earth. Only deep now can harm him. Uh, speaking about, Uh, the child who will play the role in the dark tower before his time comes. If deep now fails, the boy will be safe again. He will pass his time quietly until his moment comes. And he steps upon the stage to play his brief, but crucially important part. And then uh, Ed, there's another line that Ralph has about Ed, where he describes him as a, uh, as like a Ming vase, like that he's, Mm -hmm. and I just remember that that was a really interesting phrase i'm trying to bring it up right now i have it i have a a priceless ming vase which had been thrown against a wall and shattered yes 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 i love that because yeah and i do but i do think that i guess it just resonates with me because i know someone personally who i used to be close with who has sort of been consumed by you know the trump era conspiracies and it really bums me out because i feel like it's not the same person anymore and uh, yeah i I miss i miss dan caffrey also (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah i just i find that i find that arc to be tragic uh the idea that this guy was you know a good dad and you know i guess a good husband based on you know what little we know and that he sort of snapped and i think that there were probably a lot more issues um that it wasn't this perfect marriage ever but i do think that um 
that there's something kind of tragic about that. This person who was sort of radicalized to hate his family and hate his friends. And he kind of only finds solace within sort of the uh, ideology that sort of um, comes to consume him and his personal life and everything about it. And so, yeah, so I find him to be interesting in sort of the pantheon of King villains because he's somebody who, you know, is driven in a lot of ways by an ideology that, um, you know, that like the sort of cosmic forces that are controlling him don't give a shit about. Um, and you know, it's sort of this hollow ideology in the end of it. So I don't know. Any other thoughts on Ed? I got a lot of thoughts on Ed. Bring it. Let's hear it. (laughs) He, um, this was a really complicated one for me too, because I agree with you and I like that he is shown in depth. And I think it, in contrast to the way Helen is like depicted it really frustrated me to see that depth in him um because i do think there is a tragedy there um but it frustrated me so much because again like just where we are right now and some of my past experiences i was like fuck i don't want to feel sorry for this dude like i want him i want to be angry with him and i think if there had been more weight to helen's side of the story i could have justified the sympathy that i was i felt like he was trying to give me for Ed a little bit more, but it just, it, it bugged me. But then as I was making my notes, I was like, no, I think there is, he's depicted pretty, pretty, he's developed pretty well because I mean, they like abusers are human beings too, and they have flaws and they have good qualities. And that's part of why they can stay in relationships with people because they're not just a monster all of the time. Um, and I thought the part when the cops showed up, when Lidecker got there and he was like really cool and smooth, that was felt really authentic to me. Yeah. So I think he's presented really authentically, but I've also seen someone snap and just turn into a monster like, and you, and then they just clean themselves up really quickly. So that felt really real. The narcissism with him yeah, and like the, the hypocrisy of someone who is so passionate about saving little babies, but would take that passion and kill 2000 people. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was really well depicted. It was just hard for me to read, you know? Yeah. 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 I, that scene when, um, when Ralph confronts him and he's like shirtless with the sprinkler on, you know, it's like, it's, mm-hmm. it yeah. feels, it, it's something, it, it reminds me of like, you know, that scene in Goodfellas with the abuser and sort of him just lounging on his front lawn, knowing what he's done and sort of being proud of it. And, uh, yeah. and like that concept of like the dot of blood on his glasses, like it's a really chilling scene and it, it and mm-hmm. it feels like something very real, but then he starts sort of ranting. That's when he first brings up the Crimson King and this idea of, of, uh, Ed, of Ralph messing in longtime business and all this other stuff. And, and there's something that kind of marrying of the the mon, the banal evil like the mundane evil with the sort of like the hints that this guy is a puppet for someone it's uh mm-hmm. it's it's a really unnerving scene and was probably one of my favorites in the book but yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah um well tell me about helen a little bit how did you guys feel like i you, it was frustrating for you to read that character and i'd love to to hear a little bit more why I mean, I can talk about that. I don't want to like monopolize, but <laughs> this was the one. Mm. If anybody wants to go first, go for it. <laughs> I just kind of felt like Helen was more of like the attempt to get every almost as many kind of victim stories into one person. Mm-hmm. So she just kind of felt like a, a, a faceless character to me mm-hmm. for different stories. There wasn't a lot of development and. I just she, she I didn't have a real connection to her. Like I felt bad for her, but because it 
I King didn't create for me a sense of like who she was as a person, just more of like, she's this woman that is a pawn basically being moved. And maybe pawn's not the best word, but just this piece that is being fought over and defended over by, or uh, argued over between King or not King, uh, Ed and Ralph and everyone else who's influenced it. And granted, yes, she still gets her own life and starts over, but then there's still, uh, what's her name? Gretchen that comes into oh, her mm-hmm. life and is this powerful force. So I felt like there were so many stories that King was trying to convey in Helen that she just got lost as a as a wash character for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, th- I, I thought of her as sort of a placeholder for his daughter, mm-hmm. you know, and that's she would mm-hmm. be right around the age of what his daughter would be. And that's kind of all she served the purpose was, was to kind of be the victim and, you know just sort of move the story forward, but she didn't really develop as a character. Yeah. Yeah. Do you wish that we'd seen more of the um, sort of that, the home for domestic violence survivors that she goes to? Do you think that uh, that deserved a larger place in the story if he's going to touch on these issues? I think maybe. I I wish it had been given a little more depth than it was. And that I think was frustrating because this was the part that really rubbed me the wrong way and I think the intention was good but I have also just read Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game where he's writing about these women in this such like a connected way and like really trying to get into their thought processes and um this is this was the one that it felt like she was part of the plot and that hurt me as like as somebody who has experienced some of these things like it felt like oh this is what people see when I talk about this you know and that was really frustrating to me I felt like he kept coming back to how beautiful she was and Mm -hmm. there was like this perfect victim mentality like I was thinking well she doesn't have to be beautiful for you to care about her she didn't have to do these nice things for your wife for you to want to help her Um, and I don't know if that's fair of me to say but those are the emotions that kept coming up and like the the she was beautiful And there's a point where he says he didn't see any trace of the bruise anymore. There wasn't like a flaw on her. And it just the the language was really hard for me. Um, And I like her book. Like I like the end of her story. I love that she gets a chance to start over. I don't like the way Ralph talks about it because Ralph is talking. And I feel like this was like a misunderstanding about what feminism actually is. So Randall, I guess when you're asking did I want more of the um, the home? I think I just wanted it to be more awesome. more developed. Yeah. yeah, like they're like they're not all lesbians, and I feel like that was how Ralph saw them. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. and like her like like being with a woman in the second part of her life, which is fantastic. And that's a fine decision. But the way Ralph talks about it is she chose that because she had been damaged. Yeah. And right. that like I it was an like. alternative to be the total polar opposite of what like she had with Ed, which is not the case. Right. With Yeah. I mean, and it could be, but it's not always. And I feel like it yeah. was just so um, cut and dry with her. And I do feel like we just kind of, maybe because there was so much else going on Mm -hmm. that she was the one that got lost. I think there could have been a better way of also presenting her, but without like maybe having more scenes with the other women, but still fleshing her out as a character and going back to what you were saying about how King sometimes does different perspectives. I think it would have been interesting to get like the flashbacks of Helen when Ed starts to go, 
mad and like give more depth to her that way in that interaction. Mm-hmm. I maybe I'm wrong, but that would maybe for me that would have been a lot more interesting than just having her as this tertiary character that's just there for Ralph and Ed to connect and then catalyst off of. Yeah, because it mm-hmm. it seems like you know domestic abuse is just being used as a plot point. You know, it's just yep. a thing mm-hmm. to move the story along, which I think is is uh, you know obviously something that happened a lot around that time. I think when men were writing fiction, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah. so yeah, that's interesting stuff. Let's talk about the little bald doctors, uh, Clotho Lachesis. Mm. Is that right? Lachesis is what I say. Lachesis, Lachesis, Lachesis. <laughs> okay, and then uh, and then Atropos. But let's start with the first two. Um, I'm I, I'm intrigued by them in a lot of ways because they're representative of something that I like that King does within the Dark Tower universe, which is he sort of like portrays uh, that there are multiple roles and classes and levels of power that exist sort of in the uh, in the multiverse. And that to me is sort of a neat idea that they exist in a lot of ways, the ways that humans exist uh, in that, you know, you you're sort of like a middle manager, right? Like within this sort mm-hmm. of cosmic realm. And that's a very interesting idea too. Uh, Dorrance at one point describes the pair of them as almost short timers themselves in the big scheme of things. They have their own fears and mental blind spots. They are also capable of making bad decisions. But in the end, that doesn't matter because they also serve the purpose and Kotet. And then later when Ralph sort of reflects on them near the end of the book, he says... For the first time, Ralph felt a kind of pity for the little bald doctors and understood the central irony of their lives. They were aware that the short-timers whose existences they had been sent to prune lived powerful inner lives, but they did not in the least comprehend the reality of those lives, the emotions which drove them, or the actions, sometimes noble, sometimes foolish, which resulted. Mr. C and Mr. L had studied their short-term charges as certain rich but timid Englishmen had studied the maps brought back by the explorers of the Victorian age, explorers who had in many cases been funded by these same rich but timid men. With their clip nails and soft fingers, the philanthropists had traced paper rivers upon which they would never ride and paper jungles through which they would never safari. They lived in fearful perplexity and passed it off as imagination. So I thought that was like an interesting description of these two characters who I think uh, in other hands could be sort of just boilerplate spectral figures who are sort of all knowing. But I like that we see Mm -hmm. this sort of timid Mm -hmm. quality and this awkward quality with them and that they even make jokes and stuff like that. It's it's very charming. Um, But Mm -hmm. what did you guys think about these characters? Um, I, I actually really enjoyed these characters. Um, I like the how they would refer to humans as what, the short-termer or short-timer? Short-timers, uh-huh. yeah. Short-timers. Yeah, and, and I think putting it as middle management, that's a good way of describing it. But I like when they started getting into sort of this mythology of these greater beings, you know, the sort of eternal creatures. Uh, yeah, so they, they were, I, I was always happy when they were talking, even though it was in italics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were... Yeah, they were all right as characters. I don't have. I liked again what you were saying about the kind of the position and how the world works or how the multi- multiverse works. Uh, I thought it was interesting how King also tried to describe them in the sense of like the aliens, like the the same uh, trope of the bald headed, like big eyed, but also like featureless at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And but no, instead of no having wrinkles. them. Yeah, mm-hmm. but instead of the tall, lanky things that we're usually used to, there are these tiny little or these short men in, in smocks. Uh, 
I but I assume that they're all white because at one point in his Ralph stream they were saying that like avoid the, or watch out for the white man's tracks yeah or white mm. man tracks and I was like I was curious if they're featureless like how did they appear if they were like if there are different ones because I think they kind of offhandedly mentioned that they're not the only ones or I assume that they're yeah, I started thinking about the logistics of it all, like in probably ways that that weren't that what aren't helpful. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how can these guys be? Because ev- like it, they have a whole little process they do. You know, they cut right. the thing with the scissors, they kiss the head, they say a little mm-hmm. something nice as the person passes. It's kind of like that takes a little bit of time. How do you guys do this for everybody on the planet? <laughs> so, I know. Yeah, that's what I that's what it's I was Santa wondering. And, like, I just assume that they had multiples. If, yeah, from what I. I mean, that's how they do it on Supernatural. So that's <laughs> how I think they do it. Yeah. But then they also like, I think they end dogs' lives. So it's not just, you know, six billion humans that they have to kind of look after, but also all the animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Logistically, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. I, <laughs> they did it. Yeah, it just, it, it cracked me up a lot, but also, um, I don't know, I found them very welcome presences, and I remember being very shook in a good way when I first read the book, when Ralph and Lois are in the hospital room and they watch them uh, uh, cut the string on McGovern's friend, and and then they sort of turn and, like, look directly at Ralph and Lois and are like, hello, we've been expecting you or whatever. I love that little moment because there's something very chilling about it. And there's something very ominous about the first time you see them. I think I even have it in uh-huh. the cemetery. Uh, just the general concept of, of these big giant scissors and um, and these small little men and their white smocks and their featureless expressions. It's a very alien concept. And, and you know, King, and I think that... Uh, I, I like that King gives us an evil one too, who's all twisted and deranged. Uh, it just—it's mm-hmm. kind of a silly. It's very silly, but overall, I very much like it. But as much as I say it's silly, like I was actually very moved in a lot of ways by um, the scene when they cut the cord on McGovern's friend, the professor, because um, as I was reading this, uh, my father-in-law actually passed away, and oh, he sorry. passed away from uh, uh, brain cancer, and it was a long, really arduous role and, uh, you know, fight, and, um, uh, but he died peacefully, and I was with him, like, my wife and I and, and the rest of the family, we all were around the bed, literally right as, you know, when he breathed his last breaths, and, um, you know, my, my niece Addison was hugging him, like, as it was happening, and it was, uh, you know, it was a very gentle and sweet and very moving moment the family was kind of all together in this moment and i had you know i'd already read the section with you know where they cut the string on uh this old man who's passing away peacefully and uh it was kind of funny because i didn't think about it in the moment but i thought later i'm like you know i imagine sort of the bald doctors doing that like it was exactly Mm. like it is in the book i was sort of envisioning that and this idea of the purposeful death and that it happened naturally when it was supposed to happen and um and yeah, there was something kind of beautiful about that. And it makes me feel like King was probably reckoning with people in his own life dying and uh, struggling with the ideas of, you know, the deaths that happen naturally and the deaths that happen, you know, due to tragedy or random occurrence. And, uh, and you know, those are ideas that I think he teases out a little bit here, maybe not too deep. But I do think that those, those levels of grieving are different and... Um, you know, and if there's one thing, and we can talk a little bit about him momentarily, but you know, the idea of of Bill dying, you know, we see it happen, but we never really get to sit in it at all. You know, he's like a major mm-hmm. character in the first half, and then you know, Ralph sees him keel over, and then there's too much action, there's too much adventure for us to ever really go back and and properly mourn uh, Bill. Um, 
But yeah, I guess that's a, a nice pivot into uh, Bill and what you guys, Aisha, I think you said you had a lot of thoughts on him. Uh, I just, for me, I, I, when they, I guess, allude to the fact that Bill and his lifelong bachelorism and what it was due to, it kind of, it, I almost thought of Bill as like a self-loathing, because I don't want to say hating, self-loathing homosexual Mm-hmm. but also a misogynist mm. in a way that's the kind of but he was also but at the same time he had a good heart you know there you meet people like that i guess you could say or pe- there's people that i know who who defend people like that where it's like they're really nice and they grew up in a certain time and there are certain things that have happened to them um that create the who they are in this kind of or like how they respond to things I just kind of didn't connect with Bill either. I think the only thing that really connected me was at one point where he said, this is the berries, the absolute berries. <laughs> and, and for me, that was like the highlight of Bill and his Panama hat. Other yeah. than that, I just kind of. Yeah, the, the obsession with the Panama hat was very strange. <laughs> I, I kept being like, we're talking about this hat again. <laughs> it's very important to him. Yeah. I know, but it, it must be mentioned, though, like 20 times in the book. Uh, well, speaking of that, um, we, it's mentioned many times because we barely ever see Atropos without it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I do think that he's an interesting sort of villain, a very cartoonish villain. Um, as much as I, as I do find him genuinely kind of spooky at times, uh, I will say that his sort of na 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 kind of attitude was, Mm. was a little bit silly sometimes. (laughs) I Yeah, he's like a Rumpelstiltskin. Right. Yeah. yeah, in my a, mind, I pictured, I never really watched the show, but the Avatar, The Last Airbender, um, the character from that is what I kind of visualized him as looking like. Oh, like the May character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both bald and short. I always thought of him like this, like kind of, well, featureless, but like still there was like this age to them, even though they didn't look or they looked ageless. It was almost like this evil, bald man grinning like with Cheshire cat teeth to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make sure like big pointy ears and like a long pointy nose and like right. tiny, like big gremlin-y. Rumpelstiltskin, I think maybe the closest description of what I pictured. Um, I really liked him a lot though. Um, Cause he is like, I liked that he was described as random. Like I really mm. connected to that because that gave his silliness kind of like, a little con- a connection you know like he's not king wasn't building him up to be this grand villain he was just kind of a little dipshit that has some <laughs> power and just loves it you know um and i also i loved him i think maybe it's just because i grew up reading king but like this is kind of the, i'm reevaluating how i understand the world and i think the random and the purposeful i think made sense to me as i was mm. reading that and i was like oh i really like that as kind of a, a way of encompassing the things that we just can't understand you know yeah yeah what do you guys make of maybe I think that there's a connection of sorts. Uh, I think that King is flailing a little bit here, but there's <laughs> there's a connection of sorts between Atropos and Pennywise in their own way. Um, mm-hmm. They both sort of have these underground layers and they both feed on grief. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's this moment here. The place was more than a museum or a pack rat's lair, Ralph realized. It was a profane church where Atropos took his own version of communion. Grief for bread, tears for wine. And I do, and you know, King obviously 
toys with uh, monsters who feed on fear, but also grief. I mean, The Outsider, which just happened, but then, you know, Pennywise too sort of feeds on fear and children's fears and things of that nature. And, and so, and then there is mention of sort of the agelessness, or at least the wondering of, of how long something like Atropos has been gathering all of these supplies and terrorizing these people and collecting these trinkets. And, you know, we do see, we'll mention it probably again in King's Dominion, but we see that he's got Gage Creed's uh, shoes mm-hmm. from Pet Cemetery in his thing, which is a, a kind of a wonderful, horrible little detail. And, um, yeah. but that general concept that this is somebody who's been doing this for a very long time. And there are moments where I feel like, uh, uh, King is sort of drawing a, a thin line between Atropos and Pennywise, this idea that pe- whatever Pennywise is, is also manifesting, um, you know, in this character and that, uh, and it is sort of in a way tying Pennywise to the larger uh, multiverse, like the the Dark mm-hmm. Tower mythos, um, which is something that, you know, uh, no spoilers, but there is, you know, we do see sort of shades of, of whatever it is that is Pennywise does haunt the Dark Tower um, as it goes, the shape-shifting and things of that nature. So um, did any of that, like, resonate with you guys? Did did you guys notice that sort of connection at all? Or what did you make of, of like, you know, this creature and who he is and what he represents? Well, definitely when he went down into the lair, I was like, oh, I just, like, bunk him with Pennywise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I kind of, the, the connection, the shapeshifter connection, I think actually made more with the Crimson King. Yeah. Um, because of the the ending scene. Um, but, yeah, it, and I loved, that's when I say, like, I love these kinds of Dark Tower books because I love seeing that connection that we don't have to make completely, but you can feel it. And you're like, oh, I think I, I see what you're doing here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see more, yeah. The connection, I guess, between it and uh, the Crimson King, just because they, there's even rumor that they might be the same sort of species. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, like the uh, the little bald doctors are just more of sort of like their servants, I guess, not mm-hmm. at the same level, not as powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that's super interesting, though. It's and I I feel like King he doesn't really give us that answer, but he like I think he likes love teasing that concept of these eternal monsters, these kind of things yeah. that have been with us for uh, for longer than we can even realize, and have been sort of you know. Uh, feeding on this grief and pain, which just makes me think it's like, man, dairy is just fucked, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, how many yeah. fucking and they monsters have their... do they have here? And oh, and gosh. it's like the town, but I think that's something they talk about in it. It's just like a bad town, you know, and it draws those things, which I think is really interesting. And I love how these eternal monsters, like they have their own personalities, like Maturin, like, I guess not to spoil another book, but like he doesn't give a shit, you know, right, and Pennywise right. is just kind of like tearing shit up every one. I just love how he kind of leans in and gives them their own character yeah. instead of just making them a monster. Yeah. I, I'm always curious what, or if there is a book that I haven't read yet from him that he explains why Maine is like such an epicenter for, I mean, cause <laughs> it's not that it's not going on anywhere else, I guess, but it just seems like dairy. So why is this po- like not Podunk, but this small town <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, uh, have, or I guess it's the fourth largest city as they kept telling me in insomnia. Uh, <laughs> but why, or has there been any mention why the East coast or specifically Maine is such an epicenter? Or is it just assumed that, uh, there's maybe these hot spots all over the world. And we're just specifically in this. That that's sort of what it is. I think it's sort of like a nexus. 
Um, so a lot of the other worlds, that's sort of like almost the gateway, I guess. So things are going to happen there a little more strange. I think they went into it on it a little bit. Um, but it, it comes up to more in the Dark Tower uh, mythology a little bit more. There's never like a full explanation given, but mm-hmm. it sort of hints at that, I believe. There's also this uh, spooky writer who lives in Maine, and I think he might be bringing <laughs> some of it uh, with him, but I'm yeah. just kidding. That turtle uh, who's that? <laughs> right. It's interesting. Do you guys think that then it and Atropus would like hang out or like there's interaction? Because how do they, I, but yes, but also how do they overlap? Because obviously they've both been active in this space and yet there seem they mention offhand in the sense of like them operating at the same time but there's never inter- interaction or did they work together i think Ops. that i think that they're buddies and they trade trinkets <laughs> mm-hmm. they're like oh you gotta Poker. get some grief off this one man <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think i i th- see it as like looking down on them um mm-hmm. like it would just bark orders and not care mm-hmm. right because yeah. he understands his in the pecking order that this guy is just a Aaron boy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Vacation. Uh, (laughs) Every 27 years. Are there any characters that we haven't discussed yet that you think deserve uh, a little bit of exploration? I want to talk about Gretchen Tilbury. Let's do it. For just a minute. I don't have a lot to say about her, but I really appreciated her inclusion in this book. um, Because I think she kind of represents some of my experiences. And I think she is a good representation of the kind of help that is available to women who might be in those kinds of abusive relationships. Um, And her death just broke my heart mm-hmm. um, reading like uh, the phrase that I wrote down was that she would never tell another woman how she got the scar on her leg. And yeah. it, it just it ripped. It, it really broke my heart. And I am just glad because I feel like there's a lot of one note depictions of women. And I don't think that Gretchen Tilbury is really developed at all. But I think she is another side of this that uh, this kind of woman care um, facility that I feel like is really vilified for a lot of the book, not necessarily mm-hmm. by King, but by the characters. And I feel like she's the counterpoint to that. And I appreciated that. And I didn't really notice her as much until until I started writing my notes because I was just so caught up in all of the emotion with the the rage with the other characters. But I really I really appreciated her presence here. Yeah. Um, did you appreciate the presence of Joe Weiser? The local pharmacist. (laughs) To an an extent, I guess, because he, I mean, he helped move some things along. And I thought Mm -hmm. about mentioning him because they, he, I guess I'm curious why King decided to bring him back to drive the (laughs) truck and to uh, be the best, well, not best man at the wedding, but like other things, hit the dog. I just... Mm-hmm. Like him hitting the dog is fine just because it, I guess for me because it's like okay at least we're familiar with this character and it and it kind of like tightens the knot a little bit more of this world but when he came back like at the end and he was seeing auras too it's and then he serves really no purpose <laughs> except for driving yeah. I think King just okay. like I think King just liked the character and like wanted to bring him back a little bit more I think he's yeah. the wiser yeah I, he's the yeah. wise act Teddy wise act <laughs> I know I think he just so he- liked this uh this doofy middle aged pharmacist character I think it was maybe for him him uh i don't know maybe a grounding point because he's writing uh-huh. you know characters who a lot of whom aren't really you know uh like in his wheelhouse like you know he's writing mostly elderly characters or little bald doctors or evil fucking monsters and i think maybe that character <laughs> gave him a little bit of uh of levity when he was writing it mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, I actually wondered if he was a higher being 
Mm. Um, because he seems super knowledgeable, right? He did the paper, right? He's the one who wrote the paper on insomnia in college, mm-hmm. Mm. you know? And he just seemed like he knew so much about Ralph and what was going on in the situation that I did wonder. I was like, man, it's almost like an angel that's been dropped here. Um, huh. I guess it never really got fleshed out more than that. But as I was reading, I was just like, this guy seems like too convenient. Yeah. yeah. I thought he was going to be important more so than what they actually put him in as. Like, I thought he would be, like, in the same sense as how Dorrance portrayed, like, a catalyst or a convenient way of introducing Ralph and Lois to, like, the next step of what they needed to do. But then he was just there to drive. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking just in, would... in the king soup, you know? Well, I'm, I'm, curious, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about Dorrance. What is he? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Is he just a? Is he? Is he that old that he's just like he knows everything? I don't know. I have right. this moment where I just I'm like he never really explained what this guy is, and, and yeah, it was kind of funny because I remember when I started rereading, and I'm like I don't remember this character at all, and then mm-hmm. as I kept reading, I'm like, well, yeah, because I think he's sort of like a weird cipher, like he's. He's never explained what his connection is to the multiverse, but he seems to know even more than the bald doctors. Like he mm. sort of like lectures about them and says, "Oh, they're almost short timers themselves." Like, uh, and so he almost feels like you know, because since we have these three different novels, he f- almost feels like a, an authorial presence that's sort of moving Ralph from here to there to there. I mean, he's the mm-hmm. one who puts the pepper spray or whatever in his coat mm. uh, so he can pepper spray Charlie Pickering when he tries to kill him in the library. And it's kind of like, like, why would he do that? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what does he know? And how, like, what kind of powers does this old man have, you know? Yeah, it was kind of like this mature, not to bring him up again, but this moment of like kind of connected on the periphery and he kind of just steps in in Mm. key moments. And I don't know if I've just been watching a lot of Supernatural where like these characters will just show up and it's like some random angel or demon thing. Or it's like, oh, he's that guy. He's got these powers. And I didn't really question it. I would I kind of maybe when I think about it, that's where I feel the plotting. Yeah. I'm like, how does this uh, who does he connect to? You know, Mm. Yeah. Does he not show up in anything else or is like no. mentioned? In- no. Nope. Not that I can not remember. Yet. And yeah, I, I feel like I think I thought when Lois sees the green man at the end, when I first read it and I didn't really know about the turtle, um, I I think I thought that it was him, you know, but mm. and maybe that's the thing is maybe he's some he's like an agent of Matterin. And uh, yeah. I, I think maybe that's uh, one of those where King's like, hey, whatever you want it to be, it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah, don't ask too many questions. Um, any other thoughts on characters before we move on to a little section called Misery? Sounds like not. Let's uh, <laughs> let's indulge in the stuff that made us miserable. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? Welcome to Misery. This is the section where we talk about maybe things that we did not like, and we've already touched on some of them, but uh, but I think that there's maybe some some other uh, goofy shit that happened in this book that we feel like having a little bit of fun with. Um, specifically, and I can kick it off, uh, and I, we might have talked about this in previous episodes, but man, there are a lot of people who laugh so hard they begin sobbing and buckling over and falling yeah. on the ground laughing, <laughs> which is not something people do. <laughs> no. 
are people that like turned on by their own jokes this is what I, I or I wondered if King thinks he's that funny I think he does like is that what he does when he laughs at himself too I just that was one of my big notes just imagine him writing in his study and just like keeling over with laughter every once in a while yeah yeah that was a good one Steve <laughs> No, it cracks me up. Uh, any other things that stood out to you guys as maybe being um, especially uh, egregious? I the I've kind of talked about this a little bit, but there is a disregard for women in this book that I felt and really I did not enjoy. And I've already talked about it, so I won't like go too deep. But like constantly talking about going nuclear seemed like code for like hysterical you know mm-hmm. um and it bugged me um that the e- even the catfish was like an evil woman and then yeah. like did they have to f- cut susan day's head off like it oh, just that's in my misery yeah it was like there was and i guess maybe i can feel king's frustration in writing this book and it was kind of like a laborious thing and I feel that frustration and it seems to be kind of directed at women which seems out of place to me in like all of the other stuff that I've read by him this it stood out and it it I didn't enjoy it and I don't know if it was intentional um or particularly egregious and I think Stephen King loves women um I don't think he is misogynistic although I do think he is of his time um but it just stood out to me here in ways it hasn't before yeah, it feels like they it was kind of added almost to be like, oh yeah, this is a horror book, I guess at the end of the day, so we have to add in some horrible things. Yeah. But not a whole lot of thought. I don't know. One thing that got me and it's it's something I like and hate at the same time, but Stephen King has this way of changing nursery rhyme lyrics. Like mm. there's something in this it's like a pop goes the weasel, but it's like the monkey chewed tobacco and I'm like, yeah. "Wait, I've never heard that before." Yeah. Like mm. and he always he he changes these little you know it's like the song that you skip rope to and you sing but he'll change it in just a way that it's off and it's you know when you hear someone singing a song incorrectly you always want to step in so it just gives me a little <laughs> uh, Steven <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think for me I mentioned this a little bit earlier but Atropos kind of being such a little like like Rumpelstiltskin Joker I just found it super obnoxious and it totally took away from the horror for me it's kind of I've talked about in the pod before about how I don't like wise cracking ghosts you know mm-hmm. like I want my ghost to just be straight up scary like don't speak and um mm-hmm. like shut the fuck up and uh doc <laughs> doc three uh like him like getting so mad that he took off the Panama hat and bit the uh, the bit out like part oh, of the brim off yeah it's it's a, he's a little <laughs> he's a little stinker I know it's like it's a funny <laughs> image but then King brings it back like a hundred million times and it just gives and it has like like i don't know if you guys listen to um uh like scott ackerman's like kind of podcast world but he had a bit recently where he was talking about uh he knew nothing about the ninja turtles except for the only image he had was one of the turtles (laughs) uh biting a manhole cover like it was pizza and um (laughs) but that's all he knew about ninja turtles and they were trying to find out where he got that concept and it's a very funny idea to me but that's the thing is him biting the panama hat i just have the image of like a turtle biting the manhole cover thinking it's pizza (laughs) and it's so stupid but it's like it's just one of those where he's he has a genuinely scary little monster there and he just keeps turning it into a cartoon and like he dances Mm -hmm. and he like uh uh i don't know it's 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 and then you go to like his lair and it's so terrifying and and Ralph has this like really 
like intense sequence where he's like cutting his skull open with a scalpel and everything. And, mm. and I, I kind of love that sequence, but at the same time, like I wish that he had made this monster a little bit uh, more threatening and not so silly. Um, I just don't like monsters that like jeer at you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a very silly concept to me. Uh, but speaking of silly, what do we think about the karate chop light spear or the little pew pews? <laughs> favorite part. Is that your favorite? Would you not put <laughs> that, that in misery? Cause it was so, it was so goofy and so stupid, but it kind of fit with how sometimes there were so many things that were hokey in this. Yeah. And almost to go with the idea of uh, how they're like regressing in age, it only made sense that everything else is like unbelievable. And when you have insomnia, like I used to suffer from it for years, it there are things that you do and say and see that are like make you think you're crazy. So why not shoot lasers out of your fingers or like when you karate chop a giant blue light comes out of you or things like that. So I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> but it, cause I, I think, it was hokey. I think that's a great read on it. I think for me, I read it as like, I think I just, I have it in misery, but I didn't fully hate it, but it is something that I think I just put it along the same lines as like, you know, Atropos being a little goof and um, mm-hmm. where it's this silly aspect, but I like the way you're framing it. And I like viewing it through the lens of like, you know, reality becoming unhinged due to insomnia. But, um, but yeah. it does actually I... have like a minor place in sort of the multiverse canon in mm-hmm. the mid world canon, because uh, no spoilers, but in black house, uh, which is the sequel to the talisman, which directly ties into the dark tower, uh, there are characters who do a very similar sort of thing. And I remember okay. thinking it was silly then too, but it's, uh, it, yeah. it, it makes me laugh. A little bit of comedy. No, yeah. On that note too, though, the misery, like in real life, and I also have insomnia, like I have prescription medicine I have to take just to go to sleep. And people constantly offer you remedies. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was good in this book that these little like, well, why don't you try this? And people will be like, well, why don't you just try closing your eyes? It's like, <sighs> yeah, because it takes <laughs> me an that. hour and a half. Like people that fall asleep watching TV, I'm like, I don't understand how that could even happen. Like, yeah. And it's, you know, people are like, why don't you chew this honey? Why don't you do that? And it's, you just have to, after a while, be like, okay, great. But it's, it's like telling a depressed person, like, why don't you just cheer up? It's like, uh-huh. well, no, this is like a medical condition. Like, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also uh, just on that too, sorry, uh, misery that I was putting on myself. So I was nervous about reading this book at nighttime because I was like, well, I don't want to think about my own insomnia as I'm reading this book. Cause it might, you know, play and bounce around in my head, but luckily that did not happen at all. That's so. good. Thank, thank you, right. King. Um, right. <laughs> this book's got, uh, this is sort of a golden age, I think for King's like giving characters really bad one-liners that like that Mm -hmm. would be in a movie like there's one in in desperation which is a book i actually really love but there's one in that that i still quote is like maybe the worst line king's ever written and um because because it does it does feel like uh a line that would be in a climactic moment of a movie you know and uh but Mm -hmm. there's one here where um he's fighting with the crimson king you know and uh and the crimson king says what do you what do you think you're doing get away from me do you want to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair and ralph goes i can think of worse things pal my days of playing first base are pretty definitely over and i was (laughs) i'm like no yeah got him i know it's just like we don't need that and uh and then um i have one other one here uh, because i think people are not wrong when they say that this book is a few hundred pages too long, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just certain sections that I find completely unnecessary, like a whole backstory for something. And uh, he has that whole, I don't know if you remember where uh, Ralph is reminded of um, 
of when he sees the hole where Atropos is hiding, he goes into this whole story about somebody named Chucky and how his mom called Chucky a uh-huh. dirty boy. Oh, yeah. And like, yep, I had that. Yeah, and I have that here because I'm just like, and I was, I remember reading it and I'm just like because then he, it's all about how Chucky had a peaky wand and he would mm-hmm. look under girls look at girls underwear and stuff and it's like and it, all of it is just to say this reminded me of Chucky like there was right. no reason <laughs> that we needed all of this like I don't mm-hmm. need this backstory about this little pervert <laughs> I literally yeah. went back and I was like did I miss something is Chucky <laughs> integral to the story mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like there's a few of, of like those fit- moments yeah yeah, and that's kind of what I mean when I feel like there's like a disregard for women. It's like those kinds of things are like present throughout, just the little asides that you don't really need. Yeah. Um, like one of the ones that I had was this honeymooner connection where mm-hmm. she was calling him Norton. And like she was like, one of these days, which is like a reference to they hitting your wife. Yeah. And I was like, I, what? Especially in this book, that joke just felt so. It was in bad taste. Deaf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I definitely. I also, I don't know if this is so much a misery, but it just annoyed me. Was what was his fascination with Connie Chung? Like, oh, oh, <laughs> it yeah, seemed like was he so was weird. watching a news report and just kind of. I have that track. in my. I have that in my pound cake. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like I mean, there's doing? other parts, but then he calls her a China doll, and I was like, I know. okay. Yep. I mean, that's probably yeah. something a guy like Ralph would think, but still, come uh-huh. on. <laughs> No, no. Yeah, it, there's there's a few like things, uh, pop culture moments. Like he mm-hmm. talks about Michael Jackson at the Super Bowl, but he also talks about uh, Jean Claude Van Damme movies, Yay. and that's someone that no one has thought about since the '90s. Oh, I always <laughs> think about him. He has a great show out. <laughs> <laughs> there was was Jean Claude Van Johnson. Look it up if you haven't watched it yet. Nice. <laughs> uh, I had one other one too that I don't know if it's so much misery, but it was just something that like kept distracting me. Is that a lot of these monsters were cursing as humans do yeah and i was just like do these other worlds the other they're cursing like cunt liquor motherfucker and all this other (laughs) stuff and i'm like do they curse like us or is this just how it's translated in our head i'm like i don't Mm. i don't see them cursing the same way as we would i guess i know and i think i that i relate to that just because the it's in instances like that where I'm like, we don't need that. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, give the mm-hmm. like, make a tropos like something a little bit more uh, idiosyncratic, something more like attuned to another world. Like that would be spookier, you know? Mm-hmm. Like lowering mm-hmm. him to sort of these like um, these sort of base ideas of what we associate with you know uh bullying or re- or awfulness or childishness like from our perspective it really defangs the monster in a lot of ways for me mm-hmm. um i'd rather you know there i mean there's ways it can work but i think that ultimately it's like you know what reality does this does this monster right. occupy and would he say things like, like that you know that giant yeah. black cloud or whatever when it was doing it and it just kind of made me giggle and it took me out of like the excitement of the moment because i'm imagining this like black cloud around me cussing at me in this weird gurgly voice yeah (laughs) yeah uh any other miseries before we move on all right then let's uh (laughs) (laughs) let's move on to a section we call word processor of the gods and we're gonna make a new rule whenever i'm in here you hear me typing whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. 
Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Welcome to the Word Processor of the Gods. This is when we talk about moments of the book we really liked or uh, passages that really worked for us. Um, does any anybody have anything off the cuff that they uh, remembered being especially moving or interesting or even funny? Oh, I was going to say the uh, Stephen Dobbins quote, the poet, yeah. that each thing I do, I rush mm-hmm. through so I can do something else. Um, that really speaks to me because it, I have trouble kind of slowing down and being in the moment. Yeah. Um, and another quote, too, was the, it was life, often unsatisfying, frequently cruel, usually boring, sometimes beautiful, and once in a while exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And I think for a book that does spend a lot of time just sort of, you know, in this old man's head at 3.30 in the morning, there isn't a whole lot that goes on. And that's kind of the norm in life is that not everything crazy is going, uh, you know, there's a lot of downtime in between fighting the monsters and mm-hmm. lines like that really speak to me. Yeah. Yeah. I had that. I thought that was really nice. Yeah. Uh, I had something from, I think it's like page 672 in my edition. And it was when I think it's right after they come out from underneath the tree and they see the rest of their buddies, like chilling around the picnic table and they're looking at their oars and, I think Lois says, you know, they're beautiful. It's a shame that they can't see how beautiful. And so then Ralph kind of reflects in on himself and he's like, but what, but was it in light of all that had happened? Ralph wasn't so sure. And he had an idea a vague, but strong intuition that he could never put into words that perhaps real beauty was something unrecognized by the conscious self or work that was always in progress, a thing of being rather than seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I had the section um, where he's reading the poem and then he wants to go tell Carolyn about it. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that Carolyn is dead. And that really touched me. And it felt like such an, an honest moment and a moment that I really liked Ralph a lot. Um, <clears throat> and then I had um, one when Helen is talking about her mom and she is talking about a mom. I, I feel as much as this bothered me she's talking about how her mom saw that Helen had done Helen was in the wrong here and the husband or Ed hadn't sorry I'm stumbling over my words um Ed hadn't done anything more than just like a little home correction or like keeping his wife in line and I just the language there I I really liked it because I think it represents uh like the way a generation looks at that kind of thing and that we're gratefully like moving away from. But I think that kind of, I was reading it. And I was like, Oh, that connects a lot of the frustration I have with people who can't take things like this seriously. So I appreciated having that there, even though it really bothered me to read it. Cause I <laughs> just get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have one more that I loved. It's at the very end when they're talking about the ring, um, the ring rolled down the gutter and disappeared into a sewer grate. And there it remained for a long, long time, but not forever in dairy. Things that disappear into the sewer system have a way an often unpleasant one of turning up. Yeah. Just like that gave me the chills. It's like, Ooh, I want another dairy book. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I've got a quote here. Um, I just found this moving and, and interesting. And I think it's maybe because I've been thinking about, I've had to think about death a lot lately. And, um, but this section, Uh, with Ralph he says 
For a moment, she only looked at him, not understanding. Then the light dawned and she nodded. Ralph felt the blink happen inside of him, a little stronger than the eyelash flutter of a few moments ago, and suddenly the day around him cleared. The swirling, smoggy barrier ahead of them melted away and was gone. Nevertheless, they closed their eyes and held their breath as they approached the place where they knew the edge of the death bag lay. Ralph felt Lois's hand tighten on his as she hurried through the invisible barrier, and as he passed through himself, a dark note of tangled memories, the slow death of his wife, the loss of a favorite dog as a child, the sight of Bill McGovern leaning over with one hand pressed against his chest, seemed to first lightly surround his mind and then clamp down on it like a cruel hand. His ears filled with that silvery sobbing sound, so constant and so chillingly vacuous, the weeping voice of a congential ch- idiot. Then they were through. And I think just that section for me, it's like captures like that moment when grief like really hits you know and it becomes overwhelming Mm -hmm. it becomes a multi-layered kind of thing like one thing leads to the next leads to the next until it clamps down and um and i found that just to be an effective moment um and i've got another here that's less uh about beauty than it is just i thought it was a very evocative um phrase and it's when ralph is uh sort of grappling with uh atropos um Ralph remembered how Atropos had slashed Rosalie's balloon string after the dog had licked his hand, and his hatred for this strutting, leering, complacently insane creature suddenly exploded in his head like a rotten green road flare. He grabbed one side of Lois's slip and twisted his fist around it twice in a savage winding-up gesture, pulling it so tight that Atropos's features stood out in a pink nylon death mask. (laughs) I just like that. Uh, And I think, too, just because um, uh, I also hate that Atropos killed the dog, Rosalie, because I, mm. as we all know, I do not like dog death. I do not like animal death in these stories. I understand it must happen sometimes, but uh, but hey, I want people to pay for it. So um, any other uh, things that stand out to you as moments that worked, moments that you found beautiful? All right. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think, too, I think some of the writing around um, the auras, like, I think he mm-hmm. overdoes it a little bit. I think sometimes mm-hmm. he gets a little too uh, kind of obsessed with the colors and the beauty and all of that. And, and, uh, and, but I do think that there are moments of it that are really striking and really lovely. And, uh, and it's fun to kind of watch him toy around with it, especially when he plays with the different manifestations of the auras and things like that. So I think King was mm-hmm. also thinking in terms a lot about special effects, you know, like, because it is very cinematic. And I do think he probably thought this was going to become a movie. And I'm sure at one point it was optioned to be one. I did a little digging, but I couldn't find much. But, um, but I think that, you know, He's also, around this time, he was very obsessed with sort of neon green light uh, emanating from things. I mean, obviously, we saw mm-hmm. the Tommyknockers miniseries, and then uh, Golden Years does very similar mm-hmm. things. He's obsessed with sort of like, he describes it as um, like Emerald Road kind of light at one point, like Wizard of Oz. And uh, that, that that green is something that I find uh, uh just kind of funny because it's such a cheesy thing from these today's perspective. But I think he was very into that concept of, uh, of like bright green, like, you know, neon lights and everything. And it was the early nineties. So I found my last one. I was trying to figure out what page it's where he's talking about, uh, where they're standing outside watching the news crews. And he's reflecting on how each of the people, like the the press are standing and how there's this aura about them that of melancholia. And at one point he says, Ralph found himself remembering times in his life when he'd hit the emotional equivalent of a cold spot while swimming on a clear air turbulence while flying. 
Mm. You'd be cruising along through your day, sometimes feeling great, sometimes feeling okay, but getting along and getting it done. And then for no apparent reason at all, you go down in flames and crash. A sense of what the hell's the use would slide over you, unconnected to any real event in your life at that moment, but incredibly powerful all the time. Mm. And it's like that idea Mm. of just I lately I've been talking to friends about depression and uh, dealing with my uh, my own personal friends issue with it and kind of struggling with that. And I don't think it's the most I don't think it's a perfect definition or description or metaphor for depression, but it definitely, I think, covered the the general feeling of malaise that you get when dealing with it and that idea of like you could be doing really good and everything is great and then suddenly without any control of your own whether it be the random come through and like just change everything and put you in this space where you can't even move or do anything Mm -hmm. yeah I read that and it actually put me in a bad mood and I was like okay I think it's time to check out of this book for the night (laughs) yeah I found one more if we could if I can yeah please it's um it was so like kind of the opposite feeling it's like just a uplifting moment it's after the explosion when um Patrick and his mother emerge Mm. um Three minutes later, they exited into the fire shot night, perfectly unscathed, and upon all the levels of the universe, matters both random and purposeful resumed their ordained courses. Worlds which had trembled for a moment in their orbits now steadied, and in one of those worlds, in a desert that was the apotheosis of all deserts, a man named Roland turned over in his bedroll and slept easily once again beneath the alien constellations. And I like that. It's kind of like, Aisha, the one you just read, it's like the antithesis. It's like, mm. yeah, but sometimes things are set right, you know, and I like that because those, I think, occur really closely together. Yeah, it's like know? right before and then right after. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting, like, dichotomy there you know yeah i love that That that's a beautifully written section um and now let's move to some perhaps uh if not beautifully written gruesomely written sections in a little section we call the cemetery what's the bottom of the truth well sometimes that is better the person you put up there ain't the person that comes back it may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Welcome to the cemetery. This is the section where we talk about the things that uh, that maybe made the hair on our necks prickle up a little bit. Uh, does anybody have anything straight up? I got quite kind of a, a couple of things. Yeah, bring <laughs> um, it on. Yeah, the, the incident at the Red Apple with Helen... Um, it's not necessarily scary, but that stuck with me. And that was like for a long time. I feel like it's kind of a one note version of what that kind of situation would be. And that that was like my nightmare when I started talking about things that had happened to me and like the onlookers and the way they're like making the jokes and like standing outside and watching her. And she has like so little control Um. And the people turning away, like when Ralph and I think Sue, the store person, would kind of um, back away because she probably because of the way she looks. I think that was that's the nightmare. That's the reason why I think a lot of people don't report domestic violence. Um, And I think that was really I don't know if I say it was effectively written because there is kind of it. It seems um, very 
stereotypical of what a, it seems like someone who hasn't experienced it the way they would write about it mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if that's fair of me to say that about King and also it does happen so it's not that it's not real but it just um, that that stuck with me it triggered me for a couple of days um, you know there I don't think there are really moments in this book where I was scared but there were things that stuck with me and like really disturbed me um, another one was the moment the mementos of all the dead children mm, um, just yeah. hearing those descriptions of those those deaths really upset me. It was like a way more depressing section of that chapter in the stand where yeah. it was like all the random people that died. So well, there was too then, the there was like a well death, like somebody falling in a well. Oh and yeah, and that's in the stand mm-hmm. as well. That's such a sad, depressing thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but it was just back to back to back to back here, and I feel like in the stand there's a little more room for that. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, those two, those two bother me. And then Ralph cutting his arm. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That whole section is so gross. I kind of love it though. And, uh, oh. and it also is like, it's also so vague too. Cause it's like, I don't know. Did they know that the ki- Crimson King was going to bite his arm or what? <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole plan in the beginning. I I don't know. Know. So. Just find a way to shove your arm in there and we'll figure it out. I know. It's very funny to me. Um, I've, I'll, I'll read the section. I, I imagine some of you guys might have it as well, but I thought it was spooky when Ralph kind of was first trying to wrap his brain around the little bald doctors. So he's, uh, you know, up late, he can't sleep. And then he sees at his neighbor May Locker's house um, that these little bald doctors are there. And he describes it thusly. The little bald doctors did not actually seem to have features. They had faces, yes, eyes, noses, mouths, but they seemed as interchangeable as the chrome trim on the same make and model of a car. They could have been identical twins, but that wasn't the impression Ralph got either. To him, they looked more like department store mannequins with their Arnell wigs whisked off for the night. Their eerie resemblance, not the result of genetics, but of mass production. The only peculiar quality he could isolate and name was the preternatural smooth quality of their skin. Neither of them had so much as a single visible line or wrinkle, no moles, blood or scars either, although Ralph supposed those were things you might miss with even a great pair of binoculars. Beyond the smooth and strangely line-free quality of their skin, everything became subjective. And the, the his only look had been so goddamn brief, if only he had been able to get to the, the binoculars more quickly, without the rigmarole of the chair and the fishing net, and if he had realized that the lens caps were on right away instead of wasting more time fiddling with the focusing knob, he might have saved himself some or all of the unease he was now feeling. They looked stretched, he thought, in the instant before they turned their backs on him. That's what they're, That's what's really bothering me, I think. Not the identical bald heads, the identical white smocks, or even the lack of wrinkles. It's how they look stretched. The eyes just circles. The small pink ears just squiggles me with a felt tip pen. The mouths a pair of quick, almost careless strokes of pale pink watercolor. They don't really look like either people or aliens. They look like hasty representations of, well, I don't know what. I love that. Mm. Yeah, that's the, uh, I had that written also. Um, cause you know, I, I went into this book knowing nothing about it. So I just assumed those were bad guys. <laughs> mm. So, so when he's looking out and the fact that, you know, I think the next day she, her body's found, but the doors are locked from the inside. I was like, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. something's going on. Right. And the scissors too. I think after us now, yeah. I'm just like, they always <laughs> freak me out. <laughs> yeah. They, they sent promotional, um, scissors around to critics and I so badly wanted to get the us scissors. Mm. <sighs> yeah. We had a few of those floating around the office. I should have grabbed one. Yeah, bring me some. Um, <laughs> I also found the moment uh, when Lachesis, or Lachesis, uh said, like, was speaking about May Locker and saying, like, um, uh, you know, we know that you were watching us on Monday morning. Um, 
And then he said, at the home of, and then King writes, at this point, there was a queer overlapping in his speech. He seemed to say two things at exactly the same time, the terms rolling together like a snake with its own tail in its mouth. And the two things he said at the same time were Maylocker and the finished woman. And I found that to just Mm. be sort of an unnerving description and sort of a very, uh, you know, sterile and sort of um, clinical one, which kind of suits the character, but something that still kind of, you know, sent a little chill up my spine, so... Mm-hmm. what else do you guys have and it makes me think of, so that when i think about this whole book and how it made me feel there wasn't really elements of horror like i do feel at the end with the torture scene with uh, tropos and then the head being beheaded that's like the splash of that but this whole book i had kind of the feeling of being creeped out or unnerved and i think that was just a general feeling that there would be di- different things like them seeing uh, them the, the two first outside Maylocker's house with the scissors, and then this feeling that someone's watching you or here or might jump out. Like I think there's a point where Helen comes to visit with Gretchen, and he thinks it's going to be Ed because of the phone call. I mm-hmm. it just it was this general building of tension. I feel like throughout the whole book that it, let's say this was a shorter book, something you could read in a day. I could feel like my heart rate probably like going up as I'm reading it. But it, I think there's this just general creepiness that King did really well that just mm-hmm. kind of always made me feel like something was watching me or something was about to happen that was sinister and I wasn't sure what to expect. Well, yeah, this, the story focuses so much on death and sort of, um, you know, the idea that it could happen at any time or that we're walking around with a death bag around us at any time. Mm-hmm. I do think that sort of that looming inevitability sort of haunts this text a little bit. And it's something that I think sort of uh, infects the prose somewhat. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Fleer, did you have any? No, you actually got mine. <laughs> um, I, I think just... Um anything too with like the planes being hijacked mm-hmm. or anything like that mm-hmm. just kind of evokes a lot of strong memories. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I did, it had a creepy vibe overall. It wasn't the scariest of his books. Yeah. Um, but the moments that it hit, you know, I just think like the higher beings, the cosmic creatures, that's the stuff that I really love. Right. Yeah. We, we did mention earlier with like what happened with Gretchen in the house. I think that was like mm. for me one of the most grisly scenes as well was just yeah. the kind of the coming up. And he took, I didn't save the page. I just kind of wrote in my notes, but it was just the kind of the particular detail of like coming back to also just the singeing of her blonde hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As like yeah. the most off thing or the thing that he centered on the most, which, you know, a lot of people when they're in shock or in trauma, but they don't have time to process, there's certain points of memory that come back that like stick with you, but it's odd sometimes what sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah. I had a moment from that scene too, um, kind of near the end. Um, In one of Ralph's beloved films, such moments were usually greeted by screams of triumph and relief, but at first none of the women who had been trapped down here made any sound at all. They only stood in silence, looking up with stunned faces at the rectangle of blue sky Ralph had conjured in the roof of the room most of them had accepted as their grave. And just the ending of that really stuck with me, and it's like, gosh, what a... What a terrible place to be in, you know, especially knowing how many like there were children down there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I um, there were a couple moments of revulsion that I thought worked pretty well, like gross Mm -hmm. moments. Uh, One Mm -hmm. of them, there are things that I feel like he doesn't fully earn. You know what I mean? Like because he 
when he's in sort of the hyper reality, he teases that there's like these other creatures that exist there. Like he mentions a really huge bird at one point. And, uh, and then mm-hmm. there's the bugs. Do you guys remember the bugs? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. I found that to be an effective scene only because I hate it when I, when bugs are crawling on me and it drives me fucking crazy. But um, mm-hmm. this whole mm-hmm. section was so gross, but he's talking about the two reporters who are sort of like, you know, looking to exploit some people outside the uh, rally. And, um, uh, or the speech. Yeah, and, uh, but here, it's like, um, Kirkland leered, an expression so foreign to his on-camera persona that Ralph felt slightly disoriented. One of the color bugs, meanwhile, had found its way under the toe of the woman's shoe and was working its way up her leg. Ralph watched in helpless fascination as it disappeared beneath the hem of her skirt. Watching the moving bump climb uh, her thigh was like watching a kitten under a bath towel. And again, it seemed that Kirkland's colleague felt something. As she talked to him about interviews during day's speech, she reached out and absently scratched the lump, which had now made it almost all the way up to her right hip. Ralph didn't hear the thick popping sound uh the fragile flabby thing made when it burst but he could but he could imagine it was helpless not to it seemed and he could imagine its innards dripping down her nylon thigh like pus uh it would remain there at least until her evening shower unseen unfelt unsuspected and then Uh, later i know reliving it again i forgot (laughs) about it but like uh my skin is crawling i know and then there's one later this is so this is really short but so gross uh, he spared one last look at John Kirkland and the woman producer. They were now discussing what events might cause them to break into the evening's network feed and go live, totally unaware of the lumbering trilobites crawling back and forth on their faces. One of them was currently <sighs> squirming slowly into John Kirkland's mouth. Uh, Ugh, just really yeah. gross. Mm, and uh, like they're on God. me. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that makes me think of those shows where they make you like lay in the tub with all your <laughs> worst nightmares crawling all over you. Yeah, yeah fear factor. Mm. I would definitely be that person though watching that happen to someone and be so terrified. I'd I'd hope I'd say something, but I also don't know if I would. I yeah. know. Then the bugs will find you, right? <laughs> yeah, and there was some good good revulsion stuff too at the end, just with the catfish, yeah. like the the concept of all the eggs in its lap and mm-hmm. like spewing and blowing up and just bleeding everywhere it's a uh, very very mm. nasty uh stuff but i enjoyed it and i also yeah. his story about the catfish um as much as like it kind of comes out of nowhere and you think that for whatever it was that they were going to use with this big reveal the idea because they use his mother but then they also use the catfish and it's sort of mm-hmm. like well these are the things that represent his fears or his um yeah like the things that make him uncomfortable and make him squirm and that's the form it's taking but we don't really engage much with uh the concept of his mother throughout the book like that's like a fairly Mm -hmm. new development when uh it's like oh he had mommy issues and then uh later when the crimson king becomes the catfish it's like then suddenly we jump off and we get the whole origin story of why he's scared of catfish you know it's Mm kind of like you think they could have set that up a little bit earlier but nevertheless i do like the catfish story only because i had a similar experience where a fish bit my hand when i was a kid and it terrified the living daylights out of me and like that is a very traumatic sort of thing like when you're Mm -hmm. young and you're messing with nature and then it bites back at you you know you're Mm -hmm. sort of learning that lesson and and catfish are just so ugly too um Mm -hmm. 
And then I think similarly, uh, I, I quite liked, there was sort of a storybook quality to like a, uh, like, um, a Hansel and Gretel almost quality to, uh, Atropos's little, uh, dungeon. Mm. And, um, mm-hmm. I love this description where, uh, Ralph first enters and he goes down all these stairs. Uh, just as Ralph was starting to wonder if the stairs went all the way down into hell itself, they ended a short stone lined corridor, no more than 40 inches high and 20 feet at long led to an arched doorway beyond it. That red glow pulsed and flared like the reflected glow of an open oven. I love that description because it's just so mm. evocative and very storybook-esque in a cool way. And I also love mm-hmm. this, the description of of the chamber in a lot of ways. We mentioned some of it earlier, but I love like the remains of a meal, some gray rancid gruel that looked like liquefied brains congealing in a chip soup tureen stood on it. There was a, a, a single dirty folding chair. To the right of the table was a primitive commode, which consisted of a rusty steel drum with a toilet seat balanced on top of it. The smell rising from this was incredibly foul. Uh, very gross, but then also like, oh, the doctors take poops. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. Um, any- when you read those all back to back, this is kind of a gross book. I don't yeah. think I had realized. I know. It's all the stuff in between. See? Them just- <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Just some genuinely gross stuff in there, which, hey, I always yeah. enjoy that stuff. Um, but yeah, anything else that you guys uh, particularly found spooky or unnerving? Cool. Let's have, I think we're all hungry after wandering around the, gra- the uh, graveyard a little <laughs> bit. I think it's time to satiate ourselves with a little bit of pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray, ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Pound cake is the section where we talk about <laughs> the moments when King maybe got a little bit too blue for his own good. Maybe a little bit cheesy, a <laughs> uh, little bit perverted. Um, there's, I think, plenty of them here. But what are some standouts that stand out to you guys? Well, we've already mentioned Trouser Mouse. <laughs> yeah, that was it's like gross. The uh, the one that stood out to me was eat you like ice cream. Yeah. Oh God, I kind of hurled in my mouth. It's so. I gross. know, and that was like, and you were mentioning that earlier. I think Aisha and I was wondering if that was what you were thinking about because it came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. It's like what? No. <laughs> gross. <laughs> there's points where it's like, yeah, okay, they're sexual, and the other points I'm like, that was too much, even for me. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and that she doesn't look at him and say gross, and then walk the other way. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it's not real. Oh man, I'm trying to find it, but it's Ralph they, talking about being horny. Oh, oh I so have many it. points where he was it. horny. Oh, I <laughs> have it. We hear a lot about him being horny. So, um, yeah, uh, I have this one. Um, there were a hundred things he wanted to ask her. He felt crazed with impatience, and there was something else, something so unexpected he hadn't even been able to identify it at first. He was horny, not just interested, actually horny. Lois was crying again. Her tears were the color of mist on a still lake, and they smoked a little as they slipped down her cheeks. Ralph knew they would taste dark and mossy, like fiddleheads mm. in spring. <laughs> oh, God. Come on, man. I have- nothing, nothing hornier than a woman crying. Just yeah. Right. Mm. He gets mm. Rock sauce of how. Yeah. What what there there was a I think it okay, I found it. It was when they were watching their friends talking, uh, and they hear the pop after they're like soul sucking. Mm-hmm. And was it I think it was Stan who said, Stop interrupting for just one minute. I started to say it wasn't a fuel tank because there ain't no fire or smoke. Can't be that Don farted either, because there ain't no squirrels dropping dead out the trees with their fur burnt off. And I was just like, that made me think of my dad and like <laughs> the jokes we used to have with his like 
gas, like, knocking people out <laughs> for, like, distances. <laughs> and just imagine getting old and, like, farting and just those old people who tell you to pull their finger and, like, enjoy. <laughs> oh, it's like dust comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a section that I thought was weird. Um where he's talking about Gretchen, I believe, and he describes her like she's literally just talked about like being abused and he describes her as being pert and pleasantly sexy. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like he did, looks up did, her skirt. Did you need that? Yep. Yeah. Did, he's like, back up, Ralph. <laughs> did you need that right there? And then like um, uh, and then he also, you know, this being a king book, lots of talk about. Uh, Lois's heaving bosom or yep. nice bust. Ample bosom. Yeah, nice mm-hmm. bust. Admirably trim legs was another one. Um, so just things that I find uh, a little bit strange. How, like, do people say as she's admirably trim? Absolutely like, not. S- <laughs> I guess when you're old, maybe. I'm, yeah, I'm I've never like, heard old people say that. <laughs> I always love uh, catcalling trim dames. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> Yeah. What is it? What they talk about um, when they assume that he and Lois run off together and they suspect that they're in an X-rated motel with like a, was it a gallon of baby oil and a oh. piece of beer? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I missed that. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, on yeah. French leave. <laughs> the, the oh yeah. Anything though, it, this, it, the remarkable thing, even with all these examples, is this is one of the less horny Stephen King books. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's just because of the age of the protagonist. Yeah. But he's still, yeah. he's still got a little bit of he's it. He still got him. it though. He still got it. Uh, I was kind of fascinated by Lois saying, to say she had to pee, she said, spend a penny. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'd never heard that. And then Ralph had to talk about how he was going to go drop some dollars. <laughs> like, oh, <God. laughs> oh, yeah. I have that in my notes too. Um, yeah. And then, uh, at one point when he's in the grocery store, he, he describes some condoms as formidable, <laughs> which I just thought was an odd choice. That is an odd choice. Like, just a lot of, like, uh, weird turns of phrase in this one um, mm-hmm. that crack me up. But, uh, but yeah, um, any other bits of pound cake that you guys uh, felt the need to share? One of my favorites is when he's talking about uh, Trappos. Mm-hmm. And Ralph is imagining how like he can't stay away from the sit- the town of Derry or from this area, and he asks, "How does that make him feel? Like a tight fuck on a summer afternoon? That's mm. how." <laughs> I had that one too. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I feel like I just stumbled. Into- <laughs> it's one of those that it just takes you aback. Like, right? what? <laughs> where did that come from? I um, literally laughed out loud when I read that. Mm-hmm. That is so funny. Um, <sighs> Yeah, and then uh, any Flieger, did you have any others? No, I got you noticed some that I didn't even notice. I, didn't, I, I don't even remember the tight fuck on a summer day. <laughs> if you want to uh, use it, I know. Oh no, I'm planning on implementing all of this stuff. Uh, here, I got one that's funny. This is 242 of my edition. Uh, it's 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 funny because he's like having this memory about um, like he's like thinking back on Carolyn, but King loves to like like have these sections where he's exploring something emotional and he'll just mention balls like out of nowhere, like, or some Mm. other variation. Like this just made me laugh when I was reading it. A wave glassy green on the bottom and the curdled white of soap suds on top broke less than 10 feet from the beach. It ran up the sand toward them, freezing Ralph's balls with cold water and burying Carolyn's head momentarily. It's like, he's having this like dark dream and he's got to talk about his balls in the middle of it. Mm. It just cracks me up. Um, 
But yeah, uh, and then also I just like like some of the things Ed yells at the beginning, like when he's screaming, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. are just like nobody would say that. Like, right. like forgive my language, but at one point he just says "fucked your mother and licked her cunt." It's like what? Yep. <laughs> what? Yep. <laughs> They're very specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. My that mom thanks too. you. Yeah. yeah, and then I think we can't leave uh, Pound Cake without talking about Connie Chung a little bit. Um, mm, just really oh. weird. Uh, Connie Chung's there, and I feel like he just had a crush on her or friends? something. Well, are they friends? Yeah, I mean, like, in real mm. life, maybe. Because I'm like, she's written in this book. She has to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. She, it's. I feel like when he was writing it, he probably had the TV on and... You know, that became his favorite news program. So he's just like, oh, I know what I'll do. But yeah, <laughs> like there's a lot of talk about her, but I just like this. Uh, Ralph looked. Yes. The woman in the beige coat standing between the two texts with the CBS logo on their jackets was almost certainly Connie Chung. He had admired her pretty intelligent face and pleasant smile over too many evening meals to have much doubt about it. Why? Why is that in there? It's really weird. You could have easily made it a random person. I know. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And then uh, Kirkland was random. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then I just thought this was hilarious. Uh, so when Lois and him go back to her house, like after everything's over, and they joke about, "Oh, let's bone now," but then it's like, "No, we should actually sleep." And um, and then uh, he <laughs> yeah. goes. He goes, he supposed she was right. Five minutes ago, he had been more than willing. He had always loved the act of physical love, and it had been a long time. That sentence made me laugh so hard. It's just kind of like, oh, you enjoyed sex? <laughs> Has <laughs> no, he had a long time. Love. I had always yeah. enjoyed the act of physical love. Like, what a bizarre thing. <laughs> that sounds like a teenager writing, like, what they think adults talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah, like fan fiction. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he, he made the act of physical love inside her <laughs> as her breast heaved ample ample as her ample bosoms. ample heaving bosoms um Ew. all right i think we're all gorged on pound cake i think it's time to walk it off in a little place we call king's dominion there's another world out there i know there is Welcome to King's Dominion. This is where we talk about connections between King's various books. And wow, oh wow, like you said earlier, Jen, this is sort of at the middle of the uh, the board of thread and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot converges here. And it's not just Dark Tower stuff. Um, I got a few uh, sort of offhand ones that I think I can throw out before we get into... Um, uh, the actual Dark Tower stuff. But, like, um, there's a mention of Ray Jorbet, who is the the moon face man from Gerald's Game. Uh, there's oh, a, yeah, there's that? an early mention of him as being uh, kind of um, like his legacy as a killer in the area uh, is something mm. that's there. And obviously there's lots of mentions to it. The storm that occurred in part two of it that sort of, you know, tore mm-hmm. the town apart is mentioned multiple times. And we even get a cameo from Mike Hanlon of the Derry Public yes. Library, uh, which is nice to see him. It seems like he's doing OK. I yelled Mike yeah. when, the, when he showed up. It's like, I love him. <laughs> it is sweet. Uh, Lois actually plays uh, cards in Ludlow, which is uh, the setting of Pet mm-hmm. Cemetery, which I thought was neat. And um, I actually just thought this was funny. Uh, Ralph 
has a dream of Lois's uh, being buried in the sand with only her, or not Lois, uh, Carolyn, with her head buried in the sand and just peeking up as the waves are crashing. And that just reminded me of Creep Show, the Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen one, um, which mm-hmm. had come out at that time. And there's also a line, let me see here, let me try to get the exact page. Uh, I just thought it was striking and it was clearly, um, it was clearly intentional, but it's sort of buried in this. But he says, he talks about, oh, he's talking about Carolyn dying. And like after she passed, sort of the 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 thing of, you know, when someone you loved is passed and you realize like you sort of have that sensation where they're just a body now, you know, it's like what Hemingway mm-hmm. wrote about in in Farewell to Arms. And and uh, but he he calls her it's just a woman in a room or in the room, you know, and it's yeah. yeah. And it's mm-hmm. like a made me think of the um, the night shift story woman in the room. And that to me was was an effective moment where I thought he, you know, kind of smartly, you know, kind of just did a little nod to his uh, to, you know, his old story. So but um, any other ones that were maybe non Dark Tower related stand out to you? Um, Charlie Pickering is related, I guess, to the bad guy in The Gingerbread Girl, which oh. is a short story in um, Just After Sunset. And I really like that story. I, that story oh. is what I wish Duma Key was, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's a terrible guy in that story, too. So. Yeah. Uh, um, Ralph actually makes an appearance in Bag of Bones also briefly. <gasps> oh, he does. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I, I, right. I forgot about that. That's a good one. Um, I like this one. Uh, it's not like direct, like, you know, at King's Dominion, but uh, Lois actually has a moment where she remembers uh, Bluebeard's wife uh, when she had used the key mm-hmm. and unlocked the door to her husband's mm-hmm. forbidden room, which is a big part of The Shining. And I think it's it's just yeah. one of those stories where you're just like, uh, like, obviously that story impacted King when he was young. and um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that you know, he's, he keeps applying to his own characters. Uh, there's also a mention of it's Butch Bowers. Um, at one point he was, uh, mm. he terrorized, mm. uh, the town when Ralph was young. So that Bowers clan has always been bad <laughs> news. Um, and then there's also I, a mention of I, the deadlights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I saw one where Ralph is thinking that no angels in the architecture, no devils peering up from the sewer gratings. Mm. And it made me think of it. It was like page 286 in my version. Yeah, yeah, I like that. There's also a uh, the JFK assassination gets referenced. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so always an 11, 22, 63 cooking up there. It's nice yeah. to see it. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to read the deadlight section because this is where it kind of, and I'm going to read this other section too because these are the moments when King seems to be sort of drawing that thread between it and sort of the multiverse. And, um, mm-hmm. and he's talking about, this is when Ralph was in um, Atropos's lair and he writes... It's a bicycle wheel, all right, and it's a hundred years old if it's a day, he thought. That led him to wonder how many people, how many thousands or tens of thousands, had died in and around Derry since Atropos had somehow transported this wheel down here. And of those thousands, how many had been random deaths? And how far back does he go? How many hundreds of years? That's what I was referencing a little bit earlier, because that, to me, it almost does read a little bit confusing, because it makes it sound like Atropos is the one who's killing these kids, but then it does make you think, Mm -hmm. is there some partnership with him and Pennywise where he cuts the cord? the on these kids before Pennywise kills them or something like again it's those it's those logistical questions that aren't really fun you know or like they're fun maybe uh-huh. to think about but they're frustrating if you really think about them um but yeah, yeah. and then there's also the deadlights moment um where he says uh um let me see here 
this is when he sort of he's overcome the crimson crimson king and it says then something above them opened revealing darkness shot through with conflicting swirls and rays of color the wind seemed to blow the crimson king up toward it like a leaf in a chimney chimney flue the colors began to brighten and ralph turned his face away raising one hand to shield his eyes he understood that a conduit had opened between the level where he was and the unimaginable levels stacked above it he also understood that if he looked for long into that brightening glow those and then in in parentheses and italics dead lights swirling colors then death would uh, be not the worst thing that could happen to him but the best he did not just squeeze his eyes shut he squeezed his mind shut and i just thought that was interesting because it really does sort of tie in um you know whatever force is sort of um you know behind pennywise it ties it to the multiverse and the idea of these many many worlds which i think is interesting but you know it gives you a lot to think about that's one of the times where i think the italics really works well Mm -hmm. you know it's like this idea that is always there and it doesn't quite come up to his consciousness but it's still present yeah yeah i like that I liked there was this one part where I think to me it was almost like a little tongue in cheek for King where Lois and Ralph are kind of discussing who Mr. C and Mr. L are. And at one point as she's going through who Atropos is, she says to him after she sums up everything, does that more or less sound on the beam to you? Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm. oh, Lois. I was like, does she even <laughs> realize that she's saying it? Because they're talking about how there's a higher up and how the tower exists with the different levels. Mm-hmm. And she's just like d- consciously picking the word beam or unconsciously. But King is consciously using it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I guess it's a good moment then to kind of pivot into the ways that this intersects with the Dark Tower mythology, uh, specifically um, with Patrick Danville, who is the young boy mm-hmm. with the hook-shaped scar. Uh, we won't spoil anything, but he is a character. I mean, this book does set it up that he will play a brief but important role in the Dark Tower mythos, and he does. And um, and mm-hmm. we kind of get a lot of hints towards his connection to it, um, specifically with we see him doing a drawing and uh, that features the gunslinger and the Crimson King and the actual tower itself. And there is a moment earlier where the tower is directly referenced with the bald doctors basically say, try to think of life as a kind of building, Ralph, what you would call a sky skyscraper and then king writes except that Mm -hmm. wasn't quite what clotho was thinking of ralph discovered for one flickering moment he seemed to catch an image from the mind of the other one he found both exciting and disturbing an enormous tower constructed of dark and sooty stone standing in a field of red roses slit windows twisted up its sides in a brooding spiral then it was gone and uh and that moment i think is super interesting along with you know danville's uh patrick's uh, drawing you know and the roses are there and then i believe his aura is um is is uh, is bright like pink roses i think it's described mm-hmm. at one point and uh yeah so the clearly this kid has a very strong connection to the tower and he's been dreaming of roland um and yeah and then you read the section earlier where we actually get that moment where you know uh, Roland rolls mm. over as he's sleeping and it's a very interesting sort of thing uh, so yeah let's talk about the Crimson King as he's manifested here um, we don't get a really clear look at him but we do get uh, a couple descriptions of him that I think are super interesting um, one of which comes from uh, Ed himself who describes him as 
It's not King Herod, though. It's the Crimson King. Herod was merely one of his incarnations. The Crimson King jumps from body to body and generation to generation like a kid using stepping stones to cross a brook. Ralph always looking for the Messiah. He's always missed him, but this time it could be different because Derry's different. All lines of force have begun to converge here. I know how difficult that is to believe, but it's true. So uh, he's basically saying that only in Derry could the Crimson King actually uh, complete his mission to destroy the world or you know bring down the tower so uh what other crimson king stuff um did you guys find interesting i'm not so familiar because i haven't read the rest of the dark tower series so this was like for me i think the first mention so i don't think i found Mm. as many i knew he was like i figured out that he was part of the dark tower series and kind of like will be a major part but i didn't Mm -hmm. know his like actual connection Mm. yeah yeah it's the also the the fact that they included the ring. Um, obviously, there's a reference to mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, and King has stated in an interview before that uh, Crimson King is sort of his mm-hmm. Sauron. Um, so there's always a little. I mean, it's hard to write anything epic at this point and not have some kind of reference to Lord of the Rings. But I think that's cool that he's kind of in a way modeled off of what King enjoyed when he was a kid. Yeah, and this is an interesting thing. Like basically, when the uh, like. Um, uh, Ralph starts to be be able to see sort of beyond the catfish when it happens. And he mm-hmm. says, he began to see a bright man, a red man with cold eyes and a merciless mouth. This man resembled the Christ he had seen only moments ago, but not the one which had really hung in his mother's kitchen corner, which I find interesting is that he compares him to having like a Christ-like uh, kind of um, uh, look to him, but very red. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very Satan. It's very satanic in a lot of ways, which I think is interesting. But uh, then later he says, the Crimson King leaned forward again on its throne, its mouth yawning, its remaining eye blazing with red light. Ralph fought the urge to ink his now empty right hand away. Instead, he pissed it forward toward the mouth of the Crimson King, which yawned wide to engulf it, as that long ago catfish had done that day. Um, which is, I don't know, I just find it all very spooky because there is this, I don't know, as somebody who was raised very Christian, I think I'm always, like, uh, freaked out by, uh, you know, images of the devil, like, even, mm-hmm. like, really cheesy ones. And then mm-hmm. later, uh, you know, as the as the Crimson King is sort of being swept away, uh, King writes... He caught a strange, skewed glimpse of the Crimson King, no longer handsome and no longer young, but ancient and twisted and less human than the strangest creature to ever flop or hop its way along the short time level of existence. Uh, which those are sort of the little kind of glimpses you get at the character here, mm-hmm. uh, which I find very, very spooky. Um, what about you guys? This is actually my favorite um, instance of the Crimson King in King's work, I think, because it's those little glimpses that I do find really effective and and very menacing, I think, because we don't know. He doesn't tell us that much about him. He kind of has this, like, looming presence, and we're like, oh, well, he's surely terrible. Um, and, like, what you were mentioning about the Christ-like figure, that reminded me a lot of Carrie and kind of, like, yeah. a, a perverted, like, religious figure. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and I really dig the catfish. I loved how, um, as funny as it, I think it struck me the first time I read it, I loved that playing on fear thing. And it related, it um, reminded me so much of Pennywise. It's like, oh, that that is terrifying. But that he, it, just the merging of the mother and the catfish, I think the way that played out was so effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. 
And then uh, speaking of the Green Man, I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where, yeah, yeah this is where mm-hmm. sort of we get this idea of opposing sides like good and evil. And um, and I remember thinking the Green Man, at first I thought it was Dorrance, and I remembered the turtle from It, and it was something that I found very impactful. But Fleer, mm-hmm. what did you think of the Green Man? Um, I, without getting too spoilery, it's, I think it's a manifestation of one of the major players in the Dark Tower yeah. series. Someone who is, you know, there's specific people they want to keep alive. And I think this is sort of a disguise that this person is maybe using to influence later mm. events. That's about as far as I can go. <laughs> yeah. Um, Damn. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I know it's tricky because I want to Lo- like, open wanna up know. on it. But, yeah. Well, yeah, Lois says, know, Ralph, a green man came. Uh, and then she says, it was a green man. If there are sides in this, I don't know which one this this person is on. He felt good, but I could be wrong. I couldn't see him. His aura was too bright. He told me to give these back to you and then so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I do think it's funny because it almost feels like King is like being purposely vague in case he wants to change <laughs> what the green man represents like mm-hmm. right. later and all of all it. things. Right. Yeah. He reminded but, uh, me of the yellow card man. Um, That's what I kept thinking. Although I don't think they're similar characters, but it's kind of like a right. guardian kind of yeah, team. I, 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 yeah, I, I think about those guys all the time. When the other episode we did about the theme park, we were talking about the yellow mm. card men. <laughs> so are, they always seem to pop. Are around. there w- men for every color in this higher plane? <laughs> <laughs> like purple man. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, need purple seriously. man. Well, let's let's take a moment and we're going to spoil a few things. So um, if you have not read the remainder of the Dark Tower series, it would probably be a good idea to fast forward a little bit. You'll see in the episode notes of what uh, the timestamps are for the spoiler chat. But uh, yeah, so spoiler content beginning now. Flieger, what were you going to say? Ralph is the Crimson King. <laughs> I was like, um, you just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and I don't, I don't want to uh, spoil it either too much for Aisha, but if I can talk at kind of a high spoil level. Um, but so, yeah, the book Insomnia does actually appear in the Dark Tower series. It's given to Roland, um, I think it's, it's Moses Carver. Yeah. Um, and it's, they think it might be helpful along his journey. It doesn't. I don't want to get too much I further into that, that but yeah, it definitely comes As up. I heard, well, I that? was looking into stuff like how it connected and I read that he threw it away because he thought it was a thinny or however you mm. pronounce it. Yeah. yeah. And so he ended up not keeping yeah. it. Which makes sense. Which is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I kind of love that. It just Roland's like, nah, fuck this. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and also yeah. like if it, if any book in the canon is going to be a thinny, it's going to be this one. Cause it just connects right. to so many things. And also the Ed Depenu, um, possibly related to Aaron and Nancy Depenu, who are in the Tet mm-hmm. Corporation. What is that? Within the Dark Tower series. Oh, never mind. Yeah, I'll is... read the book. Don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, it's very... And obviously... Yeah. I was oh, just going to say, it is interesting to consider the way that... I mean, we won't go too deep into it, but the way Patrick Danville does manifest. Um, yeah. I guess I just have a... I guess I have a question for those of you who've read it. Did you find his reappearance to be satisfying when he came back? No, not really. Um, yeah. In the yeah. Tower it, yeah. No, it, I think it's one of the weaker points. Uh, yeah. It, it's like a, that, do I have a ghost in the machine? Yeah. Too little, and they even acknowledge that it is, I think, in the book. Um, 
which is also kind of yeah weird. it's like yeah. the promise of that story i think is better than the delivery of it um but Agreed. on the other hand like i love without i'm not going to spoil anything but i love the reappearance of the crimson king and i think it kind of goes into a lot of this like king's um, one of his overall arcs is that a lot of times like there's evil, what we consider like this overwhelming evil is a lot of bluster, you know? Yeah. And I like seeing yeah. it, it like really fed into an insomnia, you know, like this, this Crimson King is like, he's, he's terrible and he's like the most evil thing I could imagine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that Patrick, he says to his mom about one of his drawings, he says, his name's Roland mama. I dream about him sometimes. He's a king too. Mm, yeah. And, I, like I mean, that obviously moment. like Ro- Ro- Roland is descended from Arthur the old, the King Arthur legend. So he technically has Royal blood. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love what you said, Jen, about the promise maybe being better than the delivery. I, cause I totally agree. And cause you know, we get this whole setup, you know, Patrick will save the lives of two men who are, you know, very important to this dark tower thing. And, mm-hmm. and that is true. It's, it's, but I do remember sort of being on King message boards, uh, you know, in the early two thousands and reading theories about what Patrick Danville would actually do based mm-hmm. on the dark tower books that had been released at that point. And it was really fun. And I, I guess I just, I do remember, sort of that moment of disappointment when he yeah. it's not it's not like it's bad it's just like you know it's yeah. it's there was a lot of build-up for a character that never that doesn't really feel developed once we do meet him yeah. um especially you know, given the, the time that passed between that book and this book you know yeah yeah which is a wild lot of time for that theory to develop yeah so cool any other spoilery thoughts about this um because obviously we'll be talking a lot more about uh the crimson king in the future and we're also going to have a patreon exclusive episode uh coming up next week where we're going to talk about the crimson king and sort of uh, a bigger picture and um and including a lot of the spoilery thoughts about how he manifests in the dark tower and elsewhere so stay tuned for that next week but in the meantime i think we're back into non we're not spoiling anything anymore we are back and uh i think it's time for our final thoughts dad can we go now you ready yeah we've been ready for an hour (laughs) okay i'll be right there he said that a half hour ago yeah my dad's weird he gets like that when he's writing Welcome to Final Thoughts. This is the section of the pod where we share our final thoughts on the book. Uh, does anyone want to go first? Flieger, I'm looking at you. All right. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually very happy that I read this because it does play such a big part in the overall multiverse Stephen King Dark Tower world. Um, I think Jen put it really well when she said it feels like three different books. I really enjoyed the first book and the third <laughs> book. I think in the middle it dragged a little bit for me. Um, but it, it was... It was before things even started getting supernatural, like I was actually really enjoying just the story of Ralph struggling to go to sleep and kind of just, you know, not the most exciting, but I just thought it was really well written. Um, I liked the pace that did pick up, you know, at the end, it feels very high energy and it feels like a completely different book. And I liked getting into the mythology of, you know, the little bald doctors. Um, definitely could have trimmed it, you know, maybe get those scissors cut out 200 pages or so. But a good book overall, and I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Very happy I read it. Four bright red Pennywise nice. clown Wow. Very cool. Jen, how about you? Um, I I think I do overall really like this book. I think they're the three that the kind of the way I see it is the Helen story, 
really rubs me the wrong way. The Ralph and Lois story, I'm kind of okay with. And the auras and the like metaphysical connecting to the Dark Tower, I love. And so those kind of like push it over into the light column for me, although I don't. And just kind of the bonkers quality to it. Like, I like that it's kind of all over the place now that I'm not trying to figure out what those plots are. Um, I think the first time I read this, I would have given it probably a one and a half or a two. Like, I was really ready for it to be over. But this time, I really enjoyed it. Um, so I'm going to say three bright red Pennywise cloud noses. Nice. Aisha, how about you? So for me... I didn't talk about it a lot this episode just because it's usually something I harp on and have discussed in like <laughs> the how King portrays and views women and there were some other cringy things. But I kind of am glad that this was my last book for at least this year because I'm taking a break from the club for a little while to kind of work on some other projects. So I was kind of apprehensive taking it on. Like I didn't know anything about this book when we you guys suggested it. And I was like, F it, we're going to do it. We're going to do all 787 pages and we're going to just make it through. And there, it was a struggle, you guys. There were points where mm -hmm. I was like ready to set my dad's book on fire. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but overall, I really did enjoy this book as just like looking at it from face value. You have these old people who get sucked into this adventure they're like the most unlikely people the ones that you worry like will break a hip or like have a heart attack in the middle so they have to be conscious but still <laughs> there were points i have to go back to saying this that they were just walking leisurely and i'm like we need to run but i had to remember <laughs> you know that they're older mm -hmm. uh so i enjoyed it there are parts that i wish again like dan said like cut out good chunks that i would have done without but Overall, I enjoyed it as a story and was excited to understand a lot of the Easter eggs and things and the connections that I, if when I first started this, didn't really know anything about. So that was really fun. Um, so I would give it, because it was my first time and it was still pretty rough, three and a half. Nice. But I nice. think if I read it again, I'd give it four. Wow. I... Uh... I think I'm also three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, I, I, I like a lot about this book. Um, and I do think it's sort of a, it's like a Stephen King fan, Stephen King fan. Mm -hmm. book. You know, it's like, a, it's for people who love Stephen King and love uh, the multiverse and want to engage with King's work on not just like a casual level, but like, you know, on that in-depth fan level, which I think is cool. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, some of these, his books, I think you can read one and walk away. But I think if you're reading Insomnia, you're sort of in the thick of it, which, uh, you know, it makes it a fun book to discuss with other fans because, you know, it doesn't have an adaptation. It hasn't really breached the zeitgeist like a lot of his books have. So I think it's cool to um, have a book like this to sort of discuss. But I do agree that um, I do think that it captures um, a lot about today's culture in terms of extremism and things of that nature and, you know, uh, radicalization and poisoning of minds. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do agree that it's, it's you know, I don't think that in 19, you know, in the early 1990s, Stephen King, who had good intentions, I think he tried to write about um, a few things involving women that maybe, uh, you know, 
he just wasn't equipped to write about at that time. And uh, and it does doesn't quite age very well. But overall, you know, I mostly like these characters. They're not my favorite characters, but there's a lot of whim and vigor and imagination <laughs> to this book that I kind of love about it. It is crazy. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an unforgettable first read, I remember, when I read it. And it's not one, I've, I've this is my third time reading it, but again, so it's funny when I say it's not one I'd revisit often, but I've read most <laughs> books like eight times. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, it's... it's but it, it definitely is sort of a cool, deep cut Stephen King book. There's a lot to discuss here. And I think that is maybe its best quality is that mm-hmm. it makes it gives you those conversations with other fans and those, um, you know, those ways to really kind of uh, dig deep into the multiverse. It's kind of an essential book in that regard. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. And with that, we are finished. Our next book is going to be Rose Matter. Uh, we are gearing up for that one now. I'm very excited about it. Um and, uh, yeah, next week we're going to do a special Patreon episode in the Court of the Crimson King. It's going to be all things Crimson King. And we may even talk about, you know, the band Crimson King. So, because I, I imagine that they factored somehow into uh, King's creation of this, um, of this yeah. character. So Robert Fripp. Yeah, man. So, uh, see, see yeah. Live. So we'll be talking about that. We're going to release our schedule very soon. And by the time you hear this episode, you should have a new edition of the Dairy Gazette newsletter if you are a Patreon subscriber. If you are not, you you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Barons. We have fresh content for you. We have minisodes. We have full-length episodes. But we also always have our free episodes to you, the constant listener. Our book episodes will always be free. And that's what this one was today. So follow us on our socials at Twitter, on Twitter, not at Twitter, at twitter.com, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. And also leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't yet. Some people left us some mean ones because they because we said we didn't like Trump one time. So you have mm. to uh, go go correct <laughs> defend that. Defend the honor. Yes, defend our honor and uh, get us some good five-star reviews. Only five stars. That's all you're allowed to give us. Uh, so guys, thank you so much. This was a blast to record and yeah. uh, fun conversation. Lots, lots to dig into. So let us bid farewell with some long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you Consequence Podcast Network.